You are now listening to Sanity at the Movies, Capricorn edition. Yay! Merry Christmas, everyone. Merry Christmas to you, Ben. Thanks, Nathan. You wonderful old podcaster. Merry Christmas, Jake. Merry Christmas! Merry Christmas, Mr. Potter! Merry Christmas, Mr. Potter! Merry Christmas to you! Insanityville! <laughs> In jail! In jail! Sentimental hogwash! Sentimental hogwash! <laughs> Peter Bailey was the building. Now Peter I... Bailey was no businessman. <laughs> now, I don't mean any disrespect. He was a man of high principles, so called. So called, yeah. That's awesome. That, the whole cadence of that is just oh. brilliant. This is the first time that I noticed that Mr. Potter keeps a large picture of himself <laughs> hanging in his office looking yes. down. And, yes. and a skull on And a skull desk. on the desk. <laughs> I noticed the skull before, but not the picture. <laughs> the picture is amazing. Yeah. Uh, not a nice gentleman. <laughs> Mr. Potter. No, not so much. Why do you think that the forces, the, that big, big bureaucracy in the sky, as it's always portrayed in these kinds of movies, why didn't they decide to redeem Mr. Potter? They could have sent a couple ghosts, an angel, something. Ebenezer scrooged him. Would have done a lot more good for Bedford Falls than saving old George Bailey. Because Mr. Potter's not an everyman, and we're telling the story of every man here. Mr. Potter's not an everyman. It's true. Well, guys, sorry to give the serious answer to your fun question. That is the question that I always ask, and I think it makes if you if you if you believe in Reaganomics, the trickle down theory of economics, then it makes perfect sense that we redeem Ebenezer Scrooge. By redeeming Ebenezer Scrooge, we redeem half of London. He's one of the most influential hmm. businessmen in that merry old town. I guess you could say the same thing for George Bailey. Plus, a bunch of people prayed for him at the beginning of the movie, so yeah, I guess that's nobody's why. praying for Mr. Potter. <laughs> nobody's praying for Mr. <laughs> Potter. <laughs> well, guys, we actually talked about this movie in a Sanity at the Movies Mach One episode that I, I guess is still out there under the Sound of Sanity banner that people yeah. can find. This is an epic episode. It was an ep- epic episode. Epic episode. But today, I consider this to be more of like. A celebration. I just, this is going to be a nice, easy listening podcast. We're going to take our time. We're going to go through the movie. We're going to talk about what we love. Yeah. Maybe make fun of some of the things that are silly, if there are any things. There's nothing silly to make fun of in this movie. <laughs> that was silly of you to say anything. Right. <laughs> I'm going to laugh at that. <laughs> make fun of me. I'm going to make fun of you. <laughs> no, I would never go against this movie. Uh, to, to do that would be like, to be Mr. Walsh, and I'd have the whole bar turn against me, <laughs> kick me out. <laughs> say Mr. Welsh. <laughs> Mr. Welsh. Mr. Welsh. Yes. Mm-hmm. Never. Like, not allowed in Mr. your Walsh. Bar. I was trying to remember. Yeah. No. I'm, yeah. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Oh man. He's no coming in here anymore. He's no coming in here. <laughs> <laughs> He's no coming here no more. <laughs> you got that, Nick? Yeah. Sure. <laughs> sure. Oh man. I think Nick. it'd be fun to play some of those like Martini or Nick type characters, like in a stage production of this, you know, where you go from Nick's just like the buddy to now I talk like a wise guy. Yeah. <laughs> I need to slip you my lip for a convincer. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> we don't need characters in here for atmosphere. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Gower, you know, he's one minute, he's the drunk who's trying to poison a kid. You know, he's redeemed by George. And so now he's, you know, this awesome guy. He's, he's like gonna... standing on a car selling war bonds. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he's, minute. you know, he, he gets the awesome you know, travel 
bag that never gets used for George. And, you know, oh, oh then in this other world, he's the drunk who gets sprayed in the face. And right. Yeah, there's really, there's nobody that has a nothing part in this. Maybe, what's his, what's George's brother's name? Henry? Henry. Harry? Harry. 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 Maybe Harry's wife. She's, she's kind of yeah. got yeah. a nothing part. But, but she's used to great effect. She's, yeah, exactly. I mean, in that, in that one yeah. moment, Harry's got to go get the bags. And so it, the world feels lived in. The world feels, my take, so my hot take for that scene, which I suppose we'll get to, but I'll, I'll jump the gun a little bit. I think that's Jimmy Stewart's best acting, that train scene. Just all the little micro expressions that play over his face. Mm, People yeah. like to, when they're, you know, everybody can do their Jimmy Stewart impression like that with all the little ticks and mannerisms and stuff. But where Jimmy Stewart's really great, I mean, I love, I don't have a problem with the ticks and mannerisms. I think they're, they're really fun and great. Mm-hmm. Maybe you could argue later in his career, he leaned, he leaned, into, on, him he leaned on him a little bit much. But especially in these early days, I think people forget these mid mid kind of career days. People forget he wasn't a bag of tricks. There's actually not that much of the Jimmy Stewart kind of thing yeah. in, in this yeah. movie. A dog named Bo. There's- Here's the other thing that I think is worth noting that I noticed. I've watched this, I think, remastered for 4K. Mm-hmm. There are so many, like so many little details that I didn't ever notice before. Like, you know, and we'll get to it. So it's like, you know, that that moment when he's like, okay, with the kids at the end, I'm sorry, mm-hmm. Janie, go on and play. What was it you wanted to spell? Whatever. What did you want? He's got a he's these? got a tear. He he's like sobered up, mm-hmm. but he still has a tear coming down his cheek. Hmm. Yeah, like I'd never noticed that before. But there are little details like that that I think are. It, it's in the micro expression. It's not like that tear was planted. Like that's an, I think that's an acting tear. Yeah, no, he's just, a, he's mm. a, he's a good actor. I think he was really in the, mm-hmm. in the, like he was really. Well, yeah. yeah. And tremendous, I think he's, he's such a good light yeah. comedian. He's so good at the banter and the, not in Bedford Falls anyway, kind of that, <laughs> those sort of throwaways that you sort of don't even notice or forget to notice when he's just reacting to things, when he's just being still, when he's being calm, when, a million things are going on under those expressions. And he's really, really good at that kind of stuff. And I think the best place to watch for it is in the train scene Mm -hmm. where you watch his face lose all hope while everybody around him is happy. And then him slowly put on his composure and then slowly find his joy, find his Mm -hmm. happiness and his brother's happiness. All this happens and there's no gee whiz mannerisms. There's nothing. It's just his face is basically blank, but you can see it all in his eyes and... He realizes what he's got to do. Mm-hmm. Yep. And he knows he's going to do it. And you even see that he's angry about it for half a second. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's you do. despair and anger. And, you know, all that's going to come out later that night, but he's still going to do the thing. You know, he's going to talk to her. And yeah, yeah I, I think, I think that's fun. It's like in every scene, he recreates for you the whole story of the character. Yes. Yeah. And the more you watch it, the more you realize, like, it's one thing that makes this movie work structurally is like every scene recapitulates. Mm-hmm. Like this is who this guy is and this is what he wants. This is what makes him happy and this is why in the end he's going to overcome it. Yeah, that's really true. That's a, that's a, that's a good insight, Ben. You, yeah. should, you should be a podcaster about movies, I think. Man, someday maybe. <laughs> someday maybe. Yeah, Jimmy Stewart 
just exists as that character and he communicates those things. And the screenplay is really stacked. One thing that I was noticing that's nice is it it is almost like a play in that every scene is written to recapitulate those things and to stack stuff. It's not just the day that him and Mary had a sexually charged encounter. It's also the day that his dad died. And it's also the day that Mr. Potter came creeping. Like every one of the times the angels are going to check in, it's because everything important happens. And, And it's meant to, I mean, it it doesn't feel like a cheat because something's happening right now and mm-hmm. you need the Cliff's Notes version of who this guy is. And so we're zeroing in on these little incredibly potent moments mm-hmm. that yeah. sometimes things really do converge for people. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And that's not all of life, but sometimes they do. Yeah, this movie though, it's always converging and it makes it feel more epic and more like a fairy tale and more, it does a yeah, lot of things yeah. I think for the story they're telling. But it actually makes the weird scenes where things don't converge as much stand out, like the martini delivery scene and stuff like that. There, are, There's even some convergence there. But when the movie mm-hmm. actually slows down for just the passage of time or for yeah, just to yeah. just sort of check in, it's pretty noticeable. Yeah. Because usually it's stacked together mm-hmm. in the way that a great play would be or a great novel or, or something like that. Yeah. What's one thing that's fun is you always feel, you feel like it's played fair with the character's in your absence, like you weren't there for Mary's four years of college. Mm-hmm. Does Mary still make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And it's not because she stayed the same, actually. They no. track these characters' development. I always think of Mary as just the goody two shoes kind of flower of all womanhood, but they play her anger, they play her youthful impetuosity, if that's the yeah. uh, noun form of that word, impetuousness. Yeah. She's going to break is. the record. She breaks she's the gonna, record. She's going to, oh, hee-haw, Sam Howe. She's going to try to make George jealous. She's mm-hmm. going to, George, why must you torture the children? Mm-hmm. You know, she's going to have those moments. Yeah, like Donna Reed manages to actually make, without doing much of anything, just in the way that the clothes are designed and the way the scenes are shot and just in her performance, Mary suddenly becomes matronly around the time that she has kids and she's not before. And And then when you see her at the library in the fantasy world. (laughs) It's hard to believe it's her. Yeah. Oh, yeah. She's yeah. totally different. That's a cheap moment in the movie, which I suppose we'll have to, we'll get to and we'll talk about, but. And, and maybe we'll agree or disagree with that, but she plays it. This is. I saw, I saw a quote. I, I was looking at Wikipedia a little bit before mm-hmm. this, but I saw a, a random quote on about from, from Donna Reed that said, no director ever asked as much as Frank Capra did for it's a wonderful life of her yeah. personally as an actress. Huh. Like that was the well, most, that, that was the hardest thing. Well, it is hard. And all you have to do is watch any other movie from that era that has this type of role and you can see how flat it can be how there's, yeah. there's not a lot about mary on the page that's all that interesting i think the record breaking mm-hmm. scene is interesting other than that she really is a symbol mm-hmm. a type yeah a plot point as much as anything but donna reed brings a lot of little touches of humanity mm-hmm. to her that really make the character i mean i was thinking about other types like that joan leslie and sergeant york or Yankee Doodle Dandy. I think Joan Nussley played the idyllic wife in both of those movies. You know, characters like that. And it can be really girlish or really flat or really just idealized in a way that Donna Reed actually figures out every place where she could be that. 
just become a type, she manages to subvert it just enough that she still is the type. She still is the symbol, mm-hmm. but she also functions as like a real character that would mm-hmm. actually be married to George Bailey that actually likes George Bailey and yeah, yeah, loves her kids. And the other thing that I really appreciated in, in this viewing, and, and we'll get to our overarching thoughts, folks, in a second, and then we'll go through the movie chronologically. But the way that the characters age up is so mm. subtle and it's not not really done with makeup or anything like that. It is really just the convergence of the movie gods blessing this movie. Jimmy Stewart was at just the right age where he mm. can put on a preppy sweater and he can play 20 yeah. and then he can grow out some grizzly grizzled hair <laughs> and wear a, he can wear a suit and he can play 30 and then he can have grizzled facial hair and he can play 40 Yeah, and they don't do anything. I mean, I don't think if, if they do do anything, it's really, really subtle. Yeah, it's not much. Yeah. Donna Reed, same thing. I think Jimmy Stewart was 38 when this movie was filmed maybe 37 when it was filmed, 38 when it came out. Donna Reed was 26, 25, something like that. Same thing for her. She can play girl who hasn't gone to college, and then she can play wife and mother of, what is it, five? Four or five? Four. And the movie doesn't do anything special in terms of, except for that stupid library scene, it doesn't do anything special in terms of aging her up or down. It's Mm -hmm. just, it's wardrobe as much as anything. And acting, you know? I mean, Jimmy Stewart somehow makes himself feel thinner and feel more gangly (laughs) when he's a kid. Some of it, he's wearing an oversized kind of preppy sweater for a lot of those scenes. It's that dumb sweater that he wears after they they fall in the swimming pool. It's actually, it's not oversized. It's it's undersized. It's undersized. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 You're right, you're right. His pants are oversized. He has to hold them up while he's got the the shirt that's like... Yeah, clinging to him and really accentuating his gangly sort of frame. Right, which really makes him look like a young man. He does not look all of 38 in those early scenes. And then you just put him in an overcoat, you know, a suit, a nice thick tweed Mm -hmm. jacket, fill out his frame and accentuate his shoulders and... Yeah, and he and then give him some grizzled hair and he's a plausible late 30s or 40 by the time the movie ends. Mm Mm-hmm. I just always think that makeup's overdone in modern movies. Like you, you have to let people act to achieve those kinds of age differences. Actually, now we do it digitally as much as anything. They'll digitally de-age or digitally age up, and you can do some subtle, interesting stuff with that. Generally speaking, if you notice it, it's because it wasn't well done. But digital cosmetics are done all the time, and you don't notice it. That being said, they didn't have access to any stuff like that at this time and it's really impressive you don't even think about it I, yeah i've never i until i've seen this movie you know a dozen times sure. dozens of times i never really thought about it and something that's similar for me is citizen kane where the makeup's pretty subtle that orson wells uses but he ages from a young man in his 20s all the way to a and, decrepit old man in his 60s or 70s and hmm. it's just a hair piece and I mean, it's really a hairpiece, a mustache, and the way that he carries himself. Yeah. Yeah. It's magical. It is magical. Well, what's your guys' take on this movie, generally speaking, and what did you think about it, coming back to it this time? The 30th time The 30th time, or The 40th? Yeah. I don't, At I'm, least, yeah. I don't know how many times, but I grew up watching it every Christmas with my family, and I don't, I haven't done that since I left the nest, but um, mm-hmm. I've seen it a lot since then anyway and i still love it and every time it comes around to watch it and you ask me to watch it for this podcast nathan and i was like uh i just saw that last year maybe or two years ago i just saw that i don't Mm -hmm. i don't need to see that again but i knew i would still enjoy it Mm -hmm. i did so i love it 
It's one of my top three movies. Maybe it's just my favorite movie. It's my favorite Christmas movie. It, it makes, I know the places it will make me cry, mm-hmm. and it still does. And I still f- try not to show anyone that I'm crying because I'm not good at crying in front of people mm-hmm. about movies. I feel silly. It's great. Yeah. I did not expect to cry this time. I sat down. I was going to take notes. I was actually only going to watch a little bit of it just because uh, yeah, I need to get through this for the podcast, but I don't actually want to commit mm-hmm. the time or the emotional energy to watching this. Sure. Cut to two hours later, my wife has wandered in from whatever <laughs> she was doing and we're both holding hands and <laughs> in tears and she's mad at me for demanding that much emotional catharsis in the, the middle of the day. <laughs> uh, we had the exact same experience. So I had a notebook and a pen. I didn't take a single note. Mm-hmm. I turned it on in the middle of the day, uh, middle of the morning because Amanda had a dentist appointment and I had to be home watching little boys. So I thought I'll just get this done. If I'm going to be, basically babysitting i might as well get some some work done mm-hmm. the kind of work you can do while i'm watching a four and five year old just watch a movie so i flipped it on and then amanda got home and ended up on the couch with me and yeah i haven't actually cried as much what i i cry every time i watch this movie mm-hmm. i don't know the places where i'm going to cry because it hits me in different places at different times and sometimes it's unexpected and this time Hmm. was the most unexpected of all of them. And I basically just cried my way through the whole movie. You know, this was just yesterday, and I've pretty actively avoided thinking about all the reasons it hit me so hard this time. Hmm. Yeah, we probably can't actually talk about all of them. I'm just going to take a wild guess. I, I'm not thinking like, oh, well, it's because Jake yelled at his kids. I'm, <laughs> that's not what I'm saying, folks. No. I'm, I'm saying, But some of those things are probably personal. But yeah. I, I think- mean, everything, if you just consider everything of... After 18 years moving back home and leaving a place I love and people I love and people I love dying and Hmm. the awfulness of 2020 and those are some Hmm. starting points, at least for me personally. Well, it's it's probably worth saying, without saying anything else, we did all just have a mutual friend die who was George Bailey, who was... Yeah, that kind of centerpiece of a beloved man of a community that would never think of himself as the centerpiece of a community. Mm. And I wasn't actively actually making that connection during the movie, but I think I didn't make it until just now. Yeah. That was something. And then the other thing that was connecting for me, this is the first time I've actually watched the movie since I've been married. Married. I've been married for about two years now. And I think, but I'm not good at math folks. Uh, That's why I'm a podcaster. I mean, this, it was the same stuff that always makes me cry, but all that sort of, impotent rage that george feels and the way that he takes it out on his poor long-suffering wife kids wife and kids that was more real powerful in a new (laughs) way (laughs) yeah Yeah. and it's not going to stop being powerful in new ways for you you know you've Mm -hmm. got a kid coming Mm -hmm. and guess what man you're still gonna go george bailey on your kids at points well the scene that really hurt because I've done this so many times to my wife in our short marriage is he apologizes to the family and then he gets angry again yeah. as because they won't just accept that his apology, <laughs> the, the issue is closed. I was like, okay, start playing the piano. Everything's fine. I just said, I'm sorry. Everything's good. It's fine. And like, oh, we can see that everything's not fine. It's not fine. Your, yeah. your world is falling to pieces, dude. Like, what are you trying to pull? Yeah. Like, I don't know how many times that's happened. 
And I think we have a good marriage, folks. So <laughs> I'm not trying to paint. I don't know how many times I put my <laughs> wife through that's, that. That's part of the the genius of how they write Mary too. Is like Mary takes it. She has a line. She expects a little bit of that from George. She knows he's had a hard day. She's going to try to get him into the kitchen. She's going to try to divert him. Eventually, she's going to say, "Why are you torture the children?" Yeah, he's going to leave, and then she's going to be like. I got to figure out what's going on here. Mm-hmm. You know, we got to get yeah. to work. Yep. Like, yeah. Yeah. So, it is It is pretty awesome. Like she doesn't undermine him, but yeah. she stands up to him. That's pretty sweet. I, I was thinking from also, we've been married two and a half years, mm-hmm. I think. Again, I'm also not good at math. Not I me guess. and Ben, but Ben no, and his wife. No, not, not Nathan and <laughs> right. Ben, but Ben and Megan. And so I don't know. I think we cried at a lot of the same places, but I was, I was just thinking like, I always used to watch Am this. Am I insane? Are you guys... I feel like you guys what? have been married a year and a half. Am I crazy? You are. Wait, no, hold no. on. Whoops. No, yeah, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> you're like two Curses. years, two and a half years. I'm pretty sure we added you guys a year. Are about, I added a year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. You, you did, and I followed you into yeah, the Yeah, it, it just feels like, like two so, and a half years. And you're you're only two, I'm only two months ahead of you. <laughs> right. So, <laughs> not, not half a year. Man, math. You, you stink. I and, said I wasn't good at math. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can't just accept that, Nathan. What do you stop tormenting us with your bad math? <laughs> your our wives are going to be like, what in the world? I just wanted to sound like less of a jerk. <laughs> We've been through this a million times. A million times. In well, the last 14 months. In the last 14 months. <laughs> or 15 months. Or however. I can identify with what you were saying, Nathan, about your anger and stuff uh, and being, yeah, like, now I'm over it, but no, you're clearly not over it. Mm-hmm. But I also remember watching this as a kid as like George Bailey kind of being in love with Donna, Donna Reed, whatever, Mary Hatch. Mm-hmm. And thinking, oh, and I'm not at that stage anymore. Like, I'm married. I found the woman I love. And now I'm watching this movie differently. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. It it changed on me. And I was like, oh, yeah. I hope we'll have kids someday. And then I'll be able to identify with that kind of anger and frustration. And like, ah. Well, so many love scenes don't work for me. I don't mean sex scenes, but scenes where a man is wooing a woman or vice versa don't work for me as well now that i'm married when i go back to them it's like oh that's trite or now now i know how that works and that's not it it all just seems more hollywoody a lot of times yeah. when i see like i watch an old romantic comedy and it's like when i watched that when i was 14 i had some understanding of how trite it was but now i really understand how little it has to do with any kind of experience mm. of man woman sex anything this movie's not like that. Uh, I, the no. the scenes of courtship, Mary's desire for him, yeah. <laughs> his desire for her, the ways that they both express those things are really potent, really sweet, and really scary. Yeah. Yeah. All at once. It is doomed to be an artifact because you can't write as if sex and sexuality matter and work the way God made them to work anymore mm-hmm. in Hollywood. That is like, I mean, that is what Capra and the screenwriters and the actors really, really get on a visceral level. Yeah, like they do. That whole... The phone scene. The, the scene, phone, yeah. the whole phone scene. Oh, man. Yeah. Everything about it <laughs> and everything from... And it seems like it's made for Hollywood, but you listen to me. I don't want plastic and I don't, I don't want, want this. don't want ground floors. I don't want ground floors and I don't want to... I want what get I married. want. I want to do what I want to do. Yeah. 
Oh, dissolving oh. into them both crying and uh, kissing. It's uh, actually... It's brutal. Yeah. We've all been there, right? <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't matter that our love scenes with our wives didn't happen that way. It matters that it caught our emotions and just kept, it just traps you. No, it's what it is, is it's a distillation. I think yeah. we've all done yeah. that dance with our wives and we've yeah. all done the dance of, oh, well, this is the moment where you're into me and... I don't want you to take that power actually. Like yeah. you're gonna if, if if you come on too strong, you're gonna make me impotent and it's just gonna add to the impotence that I already feel I came everywhere in here, else yeah, in exactly. my life. I came here feeling completely frustrated, angry, and impotent, and here you are. And you're gonna say you chose me? Throwing that just yourself takes, at, that just takes another thing. Screw <laughs> this. Like yeah. I'm out of here. I don't want anything. Like I can't <laughs> But the second I break you down and you start crying then i'm gonna melt. Like, wait a minute wait a minute oh okay i guess that's that's funny because i did all of that stuff on the front end like i was so irritated when i was told that to email my now wife megan that i i was like i felt all of that george bailey stuff with it before i even talked to her mm. so i don't remember that we had that drama in our brief courtship but we had it we just didn't have it you know i think most of that drama for us has happened in the space of our marriage. I mean, our courtship was very much Nathan is the single-minded pursuer who has forgotten everything else in his life <laughs> besides this one goal. <laughs> and she's like, who again? Nathan who? So, but certainly that scene, I mean, I don't really want to talk about it, right? But that scene resonates, you know? I mean, yeah, we've, it's potent. A, we've all had yeah. that. Yeah, you're um, right. It keeps going. What they understand, without being all... I don't know how to talk about this in a way that doesn't sound, I'm talking about some kind of liberal buzzword, you know, toxic masculinity or, or power in relationships. But this story does understand impotence and potence and power and things like that as they relate to human sexuality in a way that's sweet. I mean, I, like I just said, I don't know how to talk about it in a way that doesn't sound like I'm saying something that I'm, yeah. that has nothing to do with what I'm talking about. But it does understand. It just understands how much those things are connected. I don't know. I yeah. Well, mm. it turns around. You know. So the next scene is they get married, but then there's the run on the bank. What you love about Mary is that she understands how George works, and she knows what she loves about George. Mm -hmm. And so to ma to Mary to give up their honeymoon. What you don't feel from Mary is that Mary's making a sacrifice. What you feel like is Mary's like, hmm. yeah, like this is. This is why I married you. This is what I love about mm. you. You go save the day. I'm going to go figure out a way to make it sweet when you get home. Mm -hmm. Well, like, that and it just occurred to me that Mary is actually the simple hearted believer in Bedford Falls. George is not. George no, no, is like no. right. George has never believed. But Mary <laughs> wanted to come back. Mary wanted George. Mary wanted what Bedford, what George means and what Bedford Falls means all wrapped together. And yeah, that was and Mary's, getting and it. So Mary's the maker of Bedford Falls and the maker of George in that sense. Yeah. But- in a very feminine sense. Yeah. Right? Any, anyone in a good marriage mm -hmm. understands that your wife gets you and knows who you should be a lot better than you do on a, on a daily basis at the very least, maybe on a larger, <laughs> more fundamental basis. A man, a good, a godly man, a man who leads his marriage still needs his wife to tell him who he is. That's part of the function of a helpmate is to say, hey, yeah. remember who you are. <laughs> <laughs> to be trampled by wildebeests and then appear in the clouds. <laughs> With the voice of a large 
<laughs> black man. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Which my wife does all the time, by the way. Uh, <laughs> oh, I, meant to, I meant to tell you how sorry I was about that wildebeest. Uh, wildebeest <laughs> <laughs> you know, I tried to save her, but <laughs> <laughs> well, it's in the past. My now, dastardly <laughs> uncle told me it was my fault, and it is in the past. <laughs> now I eat bugs. <laughs> <laughs> the past still hurts. Yeah, the past. Well, <laughs> you can either learn from it or you can run from it. <laughs> I'm going to take your stick, Ben. <laughs> And beat me with it. <laughs> oh, brother. So I guess we like this movie. That's Sounds like it. Well, Sounds like we we're going to talk about it in an orderly way and couldn't help ourselves from... Well, we'll try and give some order to this conversation. I don't know. Is there Are there any other big picture thoughts that you guys want to give before we go through, through <clears throat> this bad boy? I have I have one big, big picture thought, which actually Meg, Megan suggested it to me. And I was like, oh, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. To me. Which is that there's no fathers in the movie... After after George's dad dies, right? He's the only father. He doesn't. He's the only father in town. Mm. He doesn't even have someone who's like appear to him. The whole movie, like, there's no one in his life. You know, Harry kind of pops in and out, and you could see his brother standing up to him and being helpful to him. But Harry's not there. Uncle Billy's a moron. Uncle Billy's yeah. a moron. Like like George is always saving Uncle Billy. Uncle Billy barely hangs on to sanity. George <laughs> George doesn't have anyone to look to. Peer father, no one. Like he's the only dude. And the movie is stacked against him. And, yeah. it's, and it, all the pressures of Bedford Falls are weighing him down. He has no one else to look to. Yeah. And I, I'd never thought about how the movie stacked it that way before. Yeah, it's interesting. And it, yeah, and he always then feels the pressure to, to take the bullet for everybody else. Yeah. And when it comes down to the, he's going to take the bullet for Uncle Billy and leave his wife and kids oh, destitute. Man. And that's the decision that he feels like he has to make. It's a horrible bullet. It's a bullet that he think that he knows is the wrong bullet to take. So instead, he's going to jump off a bridge. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> at, le- at least they'll have. I'll get Uncle Billy out of prison. I'll save the building and loan, and I'll have some money left over for the kids. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Mary. That's where his logic drives him to. Well, it makes you want to be a Presbyterian, right? <laughs> because the idea is that you have a bunch of fathers and they all help yep. sharing the load. I mean, that's a silly way to say it, folks, I know, but... Well, I don't think Frank Capra... I think that that is a good point about the movie. I also think it points to what's weak about Frank Capra and the movie, I think, works in many ways in spite of Capra. Because I think I think Capra, and I think we probably talked about this on our episode, I think Capra does think that George Bailey is a hero. He thinks that George Bailey is justified in his anger. And he thinks that everyone who doesn't like George Bailey is an idiot. He intentionally plays Mr. Potter as the worst kind of villain. Yeah. Mr. Walsh, the movie has no sympathy for him for once Mr. he turns Walsh. on George Welsh, Walsh, whatever his name is. Mm-hmm. Everyone in the town is gauged as good or bad, depending on how much they like George Bailey. We don't have a lot of sympathy for the bank guy who's just doing his job at the end. We don't have a lot of sympathy for anybody who is a very George Bailey-centric universe. And I think that it stacks things against George in a way that... So let me go out on a limb and sound like I'm saying something negative about the movie. I don't think I actually am. I think Capra, in the way that he thought, wanted to stack things against... George Bailey. I don't think that Capra believed that there would be father figures. I think Capra believed in kind of a guy like Cap. Capra believed in Capra. Capra believed that somebody like Capra heroic individual was a heroic individual, and that that person needed to stand up against the man. I mean, Capra was he was kind of a Marxist, but he also uh, well, certainly Potter represents capitalism, and you know that 
I mean, and a really stupid caricature of capitalism, too. Oh, Mr. Potter, you've got to keep these men under your thumb so that they keep paying your rent. And right. Uh-huh. Well, in Capra's private life, he seemed to, if you read his letters and things, despise the working man. Capra doesn't have any affection for Bert and Ernie and those guys and, and, and Martini. Like, he, uh-huh. he sort of huh. is very paternalistic at best and huh. kind of looks down on them at worst. He thinks you have evil capitalist overlords like Potter or like Claude, the Claude Rains character in, um, what is it, Mr. Smith goes to Washington. Yeah. Or like, you know, there's always a guy like that in Capra movies, generally mm-hmm. speaking. There's the evil banker or congressman. Yep. You, have, you have our evil overlords. And then you have the sheep mm. who are generally, you know, they're cute, maybe. But they're also stupid. Yep. And then you have... The, the-, the heroes that take shots at the at the man yeah well and provide space and refuge and shelter for the sheep yeah and then they're mr deeds they're well who's the guy that went to washington mr smith i don't know why i keep not being able to pull their uh clark gable and it happened one night you know society is always arrayed against these individuals with a bunch of stupid people on their level and then the bad guys that are trying to devour the stupid people yeah in that in that sense when you put it that way and maybe you were going to drive there, and I'm going to steal a point. But Aaron Sorkin is his spiritual successor. Yes, uh, I, I, I think I wasn't going to drive there, but I think that's a great point. I think though, Sorkin unfortunately is surrounded by a society that ennobles and enables his worst instincts. People let Sorkin tell a story that's as bad as Aaron Sorkin is. Capra, I think, was surrounded by a system and just by people that actually curbed him at his worst instincts. So without saying the death of the author and actually it doesn't matter what Capra's intentions were, I think It's a Wonderful Life is a better movie than what Frank Capra hmm. intended it to be. I think all the people playing those supporting parts bring warmth and life and humanity to yeah. some pretty thin caricatures. Sure. I think even Lionel Barrymore finds a way to make Potter work better than mm-hmm. the character of Potter on the page really deserves <laughs> yeah, yeah. to work. And I think what's central to why this movie works in spite of some of uh, Capra's worst instincts is that Jimmy Stewart seems like a real mensch. He seems like a real dude. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, and he seems like someone who doesn't. The character of George Bailey pities himself. Jimmy Stewart doesn't seem like he pities George Bailey. Bailey. You can imagine Tom Hanks or Robin Williams or somebody playing Ugh. this part yeah, and gross, just bringing gross, so much yeah. like the actor bathos, knows he's playing right? yeah, bathos. Yeah, I think that is the word. Like they know they're playing a great guy who's being put upon. Yeah, Jimmy Stewart he never plays it like he's playing a great guy. That he play, Jimmy Stewart kind of hates he doesn't himself. play it with like a Hollywood perspective on himself. Well, George, yeah, exactly. George Bailey plays it like a man who thinks his whole life is a miserable failure. He's just got dealt a raw deal. Mm-hmm. And which is uh, which is which is the great uh, the appropriate way to play that part. You can see how somebody like Robin Williams is just an obvious example. He would be winking at the audience the whole time, saying, "Isn't so it sad? Disgusting. How my character's been treated this way." I yeah. always wanted to do something great with my life, and I've been frustrated at every turn. Every time I've had a chance to do something great, the universe has dealt me a blow. Mm-hmm. I am also the sweetest, funniest, most generous guy, and I know it. Well, yeah. that'd be Robin Williams. That'd be Robin Williams, but. but, but, but Jimmy Stewart just plays just the straight version of that. Right. Like, right. I, I wanted to do something great. I could never do anything great. My brother was out doing, you know, I had to stay home and save this stupid building and loan that I hate. Like mm-hmm. while my yeah. brother went to college. Oh, 
he got a job. I had to stay. Like, oh, it's the war. I couldn't go to work as my stupid ear. Oh, I couldn't. Do, right. I just could never do anything that mattered with my life. Right. Yeah. And he really just believes I could never do anything that mattered with my life. It's stupid. Everything has been stupid. I feel completely impotent and stupid. And now here it is. And this is the end. And it would have been, be- it really would have been better if I had never been born because for all my ambition, all my hopes, and all my dreams, what have I done? Except building alone is still going to die. And my wife and kids are going to be left either orphaned or with me in jail. Like, there's yeah. just no way out. Like, Well, and I think the bad version of this movie and the movie that I think Capra wanted to make and that somebody like Spielberg would make is, and actually, George, you're a wonderful guy. <laughs> you're a hero and you just need to get on the you're a hero train, which is kind of the text of the movie. But I think the actual text of the movie and the way it lands is because... I mean, without getting too gospel coalition-y about it, I think the way the movie actually plays is God is merciful, and yeah. we, we all do these things for each other, and we all have Everybody friends. matters. Everybody matters. Yeah. And it's not that George Bailey is the white savior American hero that I think Capra thought he was. Yeah. It's that George Bailey has just tried in his broken, sinful way to be a good guy, and God has worked through that and it's good. And, yeah. and he has a lot to be thankful yeah. for. He had a he wife a that caught him for, yep. where he, I mean, he would have gone fa- bad. It, yeah. And then the fact is the only reason there's redemption at the end of that story, apart from we needed redemption is George married well. Yeah. <laughs> like George, George, George well. yeah. George's instinct was never to go to the people that he's helped and say, I'm in trouble. His instinct was to jump off a bridge. I'm going to go to Potter and if Potter right. fails me, then I'm going to jump off a bridge. Well, it, what, what's interesting is that it actually, it serves in that sense from, I don't know much about Capra, but from what you're saying, the ending of the movie actually works as a rebuke to Capra because what happens is that it's, it's as though the movie says to you, well, George's real biggest mistake and what blinded him in his pride was he totally underestimated all of these people who loved him. He didn't think they had anything to offer him. You didn't think they could help. Yeah. You think it would, they would be useful. And they're the ones saving his butt. And that's why I think we remember this well, movie. I think we don't remember. Uh, people, li- people like other Capra movies, but it's a, uh, yeah. what's the one with Claudette Colbert? Uh, I just said it. The Walls of Jericho. Uh, uh, I don't know. It happened, one, it happened One Night is just no, about Clark Gable's great. Mr. Deeds is just about Mr. Deeds is great. Mr. Smith is just... Mr. Mr. Smith Mr. is Mr. great. Smith is and it's great. a good thing that he exhausted himself mm-hmm. on the Senate floor because otherwise the bad guys would have won. Yep. And that that sort of says Frank Capra is great and you as an audience member you're actually pretty great because you get it. You you'd yeah. be Mr. Smith. You wouldn't yeah. be Claude Rains. Yeah, yeah, if you're yeah, cheering yeah. for Mr. Smith, then it's because you're as you're awesome like him. <laughs> but this movie uh, in a, effectively says and I think it says it better than Capra intended is yeah, yeah, you'd probably jump off the bridge, but it's you'd great. Be an idiot. Yeah, it's good that sometimes heaven intervenes for yeah. Our better men. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It doesn't yeah. stroke your ego. That's true. Yeah. You know, I think the combination, I mean, you can read a lot into why George wouldn't go turn to all these other people. Sure. You yeah. can read into George, George There's, is too proud there, or well, George the, looks down on those people or George doesn't think that anybody would care. He has good reasons in it from his own perspective at that moment. I yeah. mean, these people, these are the poor people. You can't go and be a burden to them. Yeah. That's what, what is, that's what like are they the, going to do? That's the text of what he's telling himself. The subtext that's is- right. I actually kind of look down on these people. Yeah. I'm always telling them, uh, go bother somebody else. You know, one, yeah. one thing that I think really works in this movie's benefit is that Jimmy Stewart 
while he has that aw shucks all-american persona the other thing about jimmy stewart and all his best roles a vertigo this classic jimmy stewart philadelphia story is a great example he's always sardonic he's always sarcastic he's Mm -hmm. always a little bit hateful he doesn't actually (laughs) like people that much And and that's George Bailey to a T. George Bailey is always kind of saying, get lost or... Get out of my way. Get out of my way or... He loves them in spite of himself. Yeah, he loves... He he does the right thing, but he doesn't actually have a lot of respect for himself and he doesn't actually have a lot of respect for (laughs) anybody else. Like, he's a very self-deprecating guy. I just watched, I think it's a great comparison point. Have you guys seen Sergeant York? Yeah, uh, it's been a long time. No, actually. Maybe when I was a little kid. It's worth watching. It's a great movie. It's really fun. But there's two really interesting comparison points. Number one, Gary Cooper is about 40 and he has to play the whole age range and it sucks. (laughs) You're just like, (laughs) why is this old man dating this pretty 20 year old girl? (laughs) Like, what is the problem? I'm I'm sorry, Meredith. I know this is one of your favorite movies and I really liked it, but uh, that's my wife out there, folks. But I'm just going to make fun of it for a second because it's got some silliness. And the other thing is it's just got like, you can tell Gary Cooper thinks that Gary Cooper is playing a great part. Sergeant yep. York's a great guy. He's the all-American hero that took that hill by himself. And Yeah, he, d- he applied his yokel principles of you shoot the geese from behind instead of up front, and you got to wet the tip of your rifle, you yep. know, to take the glare off of it. And <laughs> it's, it's, all those things that, you know, a good country boy would understand that all these stupid Yankees don't get. There's a, there's a setup scene, Ben, at the beginning <laughs> of the movie where he has to shoot a goose and nobody else can get the goose to come to pop its head up at the fair or something. And so he does, come on, come on. he does like a gobble sound and the goose comes up. And so what do you know? Wow. He's, he's fighting those uh, <laughs> Germans <laughs> and they've all got their heads down and he makes his gobble sound and those Dumb, dumb Germans, pop Germans. Their heads oh up. no, pop their head up and he takes well, them all and then out. When they're flying in a V, you know, if you shoot the leader, then they all scatter. But if you shoot and work your way from the back to the front, they'll scatter a little, but they'll stay in formation, eye on the leader, and you can wow. pick them all down. So then, you know, there they are in the line. And so you have to, you know, work your way from the back to the front. And it's a good thing that the military never thought about this. Yeah. We needed, yeah, we needed, we needed a, a, a country boy country who boy understood how to hunt geese yeah. to do it. So a little cringy. Yeah, it's a little risable at yeah. places, uh, <laughs> to use a $20 word where yeah, a $2 a word, word would have done. But it's great. It's wonderful. It also, you have to forgive it sure. a lot. Sure. This movie, I think largely because of Jimmy Stewart's and, and then also because of Donna Reed's performance, there's so much less. You can just imagine recast, put Gary Cooper in there, put what's his face, Atticus Finch in there, put just a straight shooter guy who's playing to all of George's strengths in the performance and suddenly it actually loses a lot. I, yeah, I suddenly kid yeah, me it, can't it, imagine enjoying it very much. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to ruin an evergreen here, but it bears on our dis- uh, our discussion about the latest episode of The Mandalorian where <laughs> Carl Weathers is suddenly yes, trying to play a guy who knows he's great when he's actually a scumbag and yep. he needs to know that about himself. Play the scumbag and let us as the audience discover why we like you. It will delight us to discover those things. Play likable and we'll be like, you'll "Eh, you'll suddenly be the rogue with a heart of gold. But but if you decide that you're now the good guy and you've got to lean into what you think are the good qualities about this scoundrel, then nobody's going to follow you there. Uh, I didn't see that episode yet. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's terrible. And you can listen to our thoughts on it at patreon.com forward slash sanity at the movies. Oh, man. Yeah, Ben, you're going to have to sign up if you want to know more of our thoughts. (laughs) Uh, Shall we go through this sucker? So, 
My first thought, I, I was reading, there's a film critic that I like on the internet called Glenn Erickson. He actually works in the industry as an editor, I think, and reviews Blu-rays and DVDs and stuff like that. He has this theory, which can't be substantiated at this point because everyone's dead, but he thinks that this movie was actually written with a straightforward timeline and that Capra found the flashback structure in the editing. Huh. And there's only circumstantial evidence. Capra was a f- another I mean Capra was just wasn't that great of a guy. Capra his autobiography was self-promoting and told all the legends self-aggrandizing and self-aggrandizing, yeah. So, you know, a lot of the legends that we have about this movie that it made no money and all these kinds of things. It didn't do well, but it did okay-ish. It, it hmm. wasn't like nobody liked it at the time. It was nominated for Academy Awards and stuff like that. Like, it's not like nobody realized this movie was great until 1976 when it started playing on TV. It's just that more people realized it was great. So anyway, a, a lot of the legends that Capra tells about himself are not <laughs> helpful. Capra always printed the legend, and so it's hard to... It's hard to get a straight, to quote from another Jimmy Stewart movie, uh, The Man Who Shot Liberty Balance, it's hard to get a straight story on what happened here. But what we do know is that Capra and Stewart despaired. They thought that they did not have a movie. They just thought this is not working. And it only came together near the end. What we also know is that if you examine the footage that that opens the movie, it's obviously taken from B-roll stuff. You can actually see, and I'm sorry if this ruins anything, but you can you can actually see Jimmy Stewart run out of the shot in the background of just one of the establishing shots of people praying for George Bailey. Like they obviously grabbed some footage from huh. the end. Interesting. Actually. And maybe that's just because they didn't have all the coverage. That they, you know, there's any number of reasons why that could be. The other thing that Capra's on record is saying is he didn't want to do a movie. There was a whole genre of I died before my time and i think here comes mr jordan is a famous one heaven can wait there's a, yeah. like a matter of life and death there's there's a whole bunch of movies from that era where people died and then came back and had to deal with angels and work their way through the bureaucracy of heaven like it was kind of a shtick that people had yeah and capper really didn't want to do that this film critics theory is that we're going to actually, the way the movie was conceived is we'll just go through it chronologically. It'll just be a story of this guy's life leading up to this critical moment. And then we'll have this crazy old coot jump into the river and he'll rescue him. And then Clarence will say he's an angel. And we'll never know. And we'll never really know. And we'll actually have Jimmy Stewart deny it, deny it, deny it, deny it. Maybe the moment that Clarence disappears would be our confirmation. Mm-hmm. But it actually does make sense. You could see, yeah. you could see how that they conceived of the movie, put it together that way. You can see why it didn't play. Yep, that way, and mm. you can see. Yep, I mean, it makes sense of the really chintzy special effects. Like, why not? If if you write the script, why not just start in heaven with some characters talking? Why? It, it makes so much sense now because we're used to the movie. But if you imagine just writing a screenplay, would you say the camera pans through some? celestial bodies and then we see some stars twinkling as we hear narration Uh for for five minutes (laughs) (laughs) or those weird freeze frames where jimmy stewart i want a big one yeah (laughs) (laughs) look at that face i love that freeze frame (laughs) which is great i mean it's very martin scorsese or something before i mean it ends up having kind of almost like a (laughs) a french new wave kind of a feel you know yeah Uh, but why don't you stop it 
Because we can do that with movies. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It's great. So he thinks that that whole structure was imposed on the movie huh. in post, which we have no way of verifying. Capra never would have admitted to having that. Anything but a brilliant scheme from the outset. Yeah, I mean, Capra, not, I'm sorry, folks, but Capra, he never credited his writers. Every good idea was something that Capra came up with in a moment of brilliant inspiration. Nice. You know, him and Jimmy Stewart. Capra was just that kind of a guy. Capra was, Capra was very invested in the legend of capra for better or worse which i suppose if you make movies like he did you sort of have to have some kind of relationship with your audience i mean yeah he 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 had a brand and he needed to live up to that i suppose we can have some sympathy for that yeah this critic thinks the whole structure was imposed in post which it's interesting i think is really interesting yeah do you guys think that the movie i don't know that the movie would actually work without the structure that's hard to imagine no it, it's got, we have to know that it's going somewhere. That tension and pressure has to be there set up from the beginning. Otherwise, it's hard to see. I think you, you get lost. You'd get lost. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you would too. I think you'd be like, well, why do I care about this again? Yeah, why do I care about this guy? He, now he's a, not a kid anymore and what? What? Where is this going? Yeah. Yeah, it, you need that tension and pressure set up from the beginning. The closest comparison that struck me to this movie of other dramatic works I've seen was actually Our Town, mm-hmm. you know, the play. Yeah, it's been a long time. I think I've actually seen it on Our, stage, but it's been I, a long time. I like Our Town a lot. I don't, I don't, wouldn't say I enjoy it as much as It's a Wonderful Life, but it has the same kind of thing where you have a narrator telling you, hey, we're going to watch all these scenes from small town life. Mm-hmm. And, and you realize that, and that like actually imposes dramatic tension. Right. It makes it feel organic even. You're just watching strung together scenes of family and choir practice and stuff and the play. Same thing with this movie. Yeah, you need a conceit or something that some engine that feels that like holds it's, it together. It's yeah. driving through. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. What do you guys think of the <laughs> that silly scene that takes place in heaven? <laughs> uh I just thought it was dumb, even as a kid. Twinkle, twinkle, little star. I think this for me. This movie, really, I really lock into this movie emotionally with Musical. Mr. With Mr. Gower. Oh like, man, this this movie. Once Mr. Gower happens, I'm oh yeah in tears, and yeah. the, the movie's started. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that, that scene, all that kind of stuff that gets us there. I suppose you have to have it, but I don't mind it now. I feel like it's fun to see all those little kids on the ice and realize that the movie for the most part, is being honest when it's asked, when it's n- like naming the little boys. They mm. go, here's this person. And the movie's honest with that because it's going to give you some payoff with that character. Yeah, yeah. Even the side characters. The only yeah. one who really kind of disappears forever is Mary's brother, which is an odd character to disappear. Yeah, it almost feels yeah. like he must have had something. He, he has something. The last thing he has is like the war. He takes a bridge or something. Oh, right. Yeah. In the yep. stock, when he's, when he's, his acting is superimposed on the stock footage. <laughs> yes, <that's Yeah>. <laughs> but <laughs> I don't even know, but yeah. I don't even know if he shows up at George's salvation party at or whatever end. at the end. He might, he might not. So the movie disappears him, which is weird. And like, didn't seem like it was thought out that well. But otherwise, all those little characters. Yeah, we, we track, I mean, it, they give Sam Wainwright a fun little gimmick to help you track him. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And they give everybody. I, it's, it, it's, yeah. I thought of uh, one of the things that I think is silly is George McFly goes back in time and there's another 
Biff. Like every generation, every generation of Biff. I love, that. I love that. Biff is just like this, this, this reoccurring He's natural like phenomenon. <laughs> I love that. About the archetypal, <laughs> like the Western town is going to have its Biff. <laughs> and I've never seen it, but I've been told if you watch the animated Back to the Future show that they did around that time, they go to Rome and there's there's Biff. A Biff. Biff you, know? <laughs> you go to Africa, there's there's always going to be like every time has its Biff. Which uh, is, <laughs> that's hilarious. This has uh, the same kind of feeling, though, of, well, Violet was always that way. Yeah. Yep. She, yeah, yeah. And, yeah. like, she always had one character trait, <laughs> and unfortunately for her, it was that. <laughs> she wanted to, what's wrong with kissing all the boys? <laughs> you like every boy. What's wrong, what's with, wrong that? with that? <laughs> <laughs> and Mary Hatch always loved George Bailey. I don't know. I suppose it's fable. Like uh, I'm, and and George is always completely indifferent. Yeah, yeah. Say George. brainless. Yeah, say brainless. <laughs> don't you know where coconuts come from? <laughs> Fiji Island. See. Yeah, George. Oh, o. a new magazine. I've never seen it. Of course you haven't. Only us explorers. explorers get it. <laughs> I've been nominated for membership at the National Geographic Society. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> it's great. It's great. Uh, yeah, I don't want to. They want you to pay for a subscription. Is that what? <laughs> I don't want to deduct any points for that. I don't no, think. Like, no, I think it's awesome. I, I it. And it lets you track this small town. Having Violet just be such a type. She's just, Violet is always Violet. Like, it lets yeah. you track Violet better than if she was a more developed yeah. character. This, I mean, this movie needs archetypes and it needs stereotypes. Like, Mr. Martini being as Mr. Martini ish as he is yeah. only helps. This movie. Well, but then, you know, even then you get counterweights, mm-hmm. right? So, Mr. Martini can be super Italian, stereotype, whatever. And then Mr. Potter is going to tell George that all the stupid poor people he takes care of are a bunch of garlic eaters. Right. And so, every time they throw a, uh, a stereotype, I, mean, I don't know that this is actually true, but it feels like every time they throw a stereotype at you, there's always some kind of counterbalance no, that's true even with violet being uh what's what's the polite way of saying it a floozy uh, yeah. she's gonna show up and oh, say this ah, old thing i don't want to go i actually i prefer small town life i don't I, i'm not gonna go to the big city i'm I'll right make, i'll make it work in bedford falls yeah mm-hmm. she'd rather be a big fish in a little pond right and yeah that brings some humanity to her great choice violet by the way i think i think she's right <laughs> um, <laughs> oh man <laughs> the character of violet i love gloria graham she always she always got stuck playing those parts she's, uh, she's famous for i'm just a girl who can't say no in in oklahoma she played that part and the press of the, the wonderful misogynist press actually gave her the nickname of the can't say no girl which stuck with her her whole life and poor girl she she lived down to it. I mean, she, even apart from f- making that song famous, deserved it. She was, they, she was Violet. I mean, hmm. but it's always fun to see her pop up in things. Her best role is, there's a Humphrey Bogart movie that's really interesting and sad called In a Lonely Place, huh. a film noir where she plays the girl. And that's a mature developed role for her where she's not just playing. Hmm a floozy but i recommend that movie if you want something that's a real downer then <laughs> great i already feel depressed talking about her life yeah <laughs> a little bit so okay we've made it through exactly one scene in this movie we have the heavenly bodies do you guys have any theories i was tr- i was thinking of this 
I cannot think of any exceptions to this rule. Heaven, when it's portrayed on film, I mean, every once in a while, it'll be like a white place with angels or something like that. Foggy clouds. Like Bill and Ted are going to go to heaven. It's going to be like a white fog. Like that's kind of the the comedy place. Heaven can wait. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's the kind of... So I can think of two ways that I've seen heaven and angels portrayed, and they're the only really the two ways. Number one, a benevolent-ish bureaucracy, which is what this is, kind of a a boys club style mad men kind of but with, without any of the bad stuff from mad men just like a a very nice corporate place yeah that you have and, and you kind of have to work your way through the corporate levels mm-hmm. to, in order to get to see management there's that version of heaven any movie in this genre which if people don't know i think the people like to call this film blanc as opposed to film noir film noir shows us the cd underside of ourselves film blanc is the opposite it uplifts us and <laughs> makes us happy and shows us that heaven is on our side and all that sort of thing it's touched by an angel these kinds of things so heaven's always either a bureaucracy like a benevolent sort of bureaucracy or it's some kind of a weird existential kind of thing like what dreams may come or wings of desire or city of angels you know it'll be like this you have to find yourself and find your your happy spot within this kind of hippie thing you know tree of life those kind of terrence malick movies it'll be like some kind of hippie existential crap that's one way of doing heaven the other way is benevolent bureaucracy and i was trying to think for like why are those the two things that 20th century and 21st century people have locked into as far as the popular conceptions like because we're all statists. Yeah, <laughs> you could you could do an easy like you know Marxist read on this or something. But right. <laughs> are we Democrats or are we Republicans? Right. It's a very you could say it's a very Republican view of huh. you know big corporate. You know, for a guy that looks down on corporations, Capra is going to present heaven as a benevolent corporation where Clarence wants to mm-hmm. move up the ladder and get his wings and. Yep. Mr. Potter would be in favor of running heaven that way. Only he'd never give anybody their wings so <laughs> oh, that was my theory the all a reflection of our politics our bourgeois identity we're projecting our political framework onto heaven huh. maybe it's a convenient way of they have enough respect they don't actually want to make god into a character generally speaking i think that's part of it so if sure. you're, i if mean you if you think in. about what the blocks of the catholics would have done if they tried to or even just a good evangelical, like we wouldn't watch this movie. No, no, no. We, nope. yeah. I feel bad not making an apology or having some kind of argument about whether or not we should watch it to begin with because of its depictions. I think we did in our other episode. We did. Yeah. We did. And I'm glad that we did, but it's a fairy tale. And it's basically the same argument that we've made for Gandalf and our should Christians listen to fantasy SOS. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You have to detach yourself from this having any sort of. <laughs> actual theological or this is this is not about life it's the same thing as a folk tale where the devil quote unquote shows up we're not talking about the devil with a capital d we're talking about the trickster loki kind of figure from folklore and should they have the same names probably not but can we give that an uneasy pass as mature i i always say there's things that christians can enjoy that they couldn't write, mm-hmm. <laughs> they couldn't make. Yeah. So could you use 
a sort of Catholic light version of heaven as a fairy tale heaven for It's a Wonderful Life. If you were Frank Capra's screenwriter, I don't think I could. No, I couldn't. I mean, I, I, I would just make some changes. I'd just make them ghosts or mm-hmm. benevolent yeah. beings of some. Yep. Bene- the Christmas, it's the Christmas spirits or something. Yep. Yep. I actually That's feel better idea. about Charles Dickens because his mythology is so divorced from yeah. truth, truth. It's that it doesn't really step on our toes. His, his specters are like, we're allegory. Yeah. <laughs> Hi. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I am not real. <laughs> I may, in fact, be a bit of underdone potato. <laughs> Who's to say? What matters is what happens in your heart through this weird <laughs> dream sequence that you're about to go through. I represent your dread of a future where you continue to be an evil man. Right. I'm death. (laughs) I'm your death. Uh, Boy. So, all right, we're on to the snow scene. He saves his brother on an obviously stage-bound set that is not a real forest with a real pond. And I really like that, actually. I think the stage-boundiness of some of this, of a few parts of this movie, actually add to that kind of... I felt the whole way through, I would love... To see a to see a quality stage adaptation of this, mm-hmm. like I kept feeling that huh. when it comes to you know, especially like a holiday movie that you're going to see over and over and over again. I don't know. Like I feel like this is a movie that just deserves a story. And I know we've talked about how much Jimmy Stewart and Donna Reed mm-hmm. are what make it work and hold it together. But it has that kind of elemental power, like a Hamlet or something. Like yeah. you could see, mm-hmm. let's uh, let this guy give his interpretation. Let's exactly. see if Hanks can bring it. Let's. See I if, would go see. Yeah. Part of me was was thinking I would kind of rather go see a different interpretation live on stage somewhere of this every year, something like that. Like, or hmm. at least every once in a while, that would be fun. Yeah. Is there not? And I was, I don't think you know, so. and you know, I don't know what the. I mean, maybe there are rights issues or whatever. If there are no rights issues, yeah. then I say that we cast our Sanityville characters one year and try it. Not for not on stage, but for radio drama. Huh. See if we can... Huh. Man, that makes me feel pretty intimidated, I have to say. <laughs> the fact that we but would have right, Sparky Jake. play yeah. George, George Bailey. Bailey. <laughs> I'm shaking the dust of this crummy old town off my boots. <laughs> exactly. I'm going to see the world. <laughs> that money's in bill's house (laughs) wow we certainly couldn't have matt and erica be (laughs) be georgian uh oh uh, man that's terrifying no to even contemplate it is terrifying there okay there are there's musical adaptations interesting yeah there's a live radio play somewhere i'm not seeing hold on hold on yeah, there are stage adaptations. Could you make Chip and Claire George and Mary, or would it would it have to be Lance and Laura? I think it'd probably have to be Lance and Laura. It would have to be Lance and Laura. Yeah, I do think the stage boundiness of this whole thing, of this whole endeavor, adds to it. I think I think this movie would actually be quite a bit worse if those woods looked real. completely real. If Bedford Falls seemed like just a completely real town i think enough of those i think there's enough stuff that's played real and played straight but having some moments that feel blatantly artificial even the stupid what plays into the whole fantasy (laughs) yeah aspect of it all feels just more fairy tale and fantastical 
because it doesn't matter what we're actually dealing with are the character moments and character beats. And I think the black and white helps for that. I think everything conspires to make this more of an abstraction. I I watched a colorized version of that once and never, ever again. Jimmy Stewart testified in Congress that it shouldn't happen. What's his face? The guy that, uh, what is his name? Rupert uh, Murdoch bought the rights and created a colorized version. Actually, he didn't buy the rights because it had lapsed out of copyright. Rupert Murdoch created a colorized version for TBS or TBN or whichever, not TBN, but whatever station. TNT. The, the TNT, yeah. They were, they were charging to show the colorized version where TV stations could play the black and white version for free because it's the black and white version that had lapsed out of copyright. But the colorized version was were copyrighted. So people were paying more money for an inferior product. Yeah. And Jimmy Stewart huh. actually went before Congress. <laughs> <laughs> said, Before Congress, and said in his inimitable Jimmy Stewart fashion that I don't, they, I don't understand why that comes to Congress. I don't get it. I mean, it was probably uh, if you think of movie copyright and mm-hmm. things like that, it just was unlegislated. Uh, that that'd be my uh, unlegislated, huh. unregulated how these things would happen. So you'd have to make an appeal to Congress to huh. intervene and say this is a new scenario. This isn't something that. Huh our copyright laws have, you know, really cover and it can be argued in courts, but also it needs to be regulated or legislated. I mean, I'm sure that that's the context, right? Yeah. I don't, I don't have all the details right in front of me. I don't remember exactly, but it was kind of like the famous footage you can find of Mr. Rogers asking for more money for PBS, for PBS, for, for, for children's programming, for public television. Jimmy Stewart went and sort of, did his his Mr. Smith thing to Yes, yeah, so probably what Rupert Murdoch did was totally within his rights based on available law and somebody had to go make a case yeah, for this, the laws to change or new laws and regulations to be written to prevent that kind of thing from it's happening. it's an interesting huh. story and we won't we don't have to go into all of it, but if you're interested, folks, you can look it up. The movie fell out of copyright and then it began to be shown on TV and then it became a perennial Christmas favorite. Basically, this movie has the fact that it's so iconic and beloved is directly due to the fact that there was a copyright lapse. It shouldn't have fallen out of copyright. Something from its era wouldn't have naturally fallen out of copyright. It was a mistake or a problem. Hmm. Somehow, the rights were regained and it was, I don't even know what studio got it back, but they had to do this weird thing where they they circled back around and said, we have rights to the soundtrack or we have rights to this aspect or the screenplay. They had to do a trick. And so it got withdrawn mm. from public domain in the late 90s, early 2000s. Now it's not in the public domain. And I actually think that that's helped its reputation. I think people my age really love A Christmas Story, but I feel like maybe it's not getting passed down because it's been so commodified and become so ubiquitous that the, mm. the people directly younger than us resent it kind of like oh this is the dumb thing that gets played all the time that we I, can't get away from i actually resent it yeah do i you? don't i don't love it i resent it huh. it's the thing that to me i have memories of being just stupid high pressure high tension environments on thanksgiving or whatever or, and it's just that's what's on tv and we're all supposed to like this right and, it's a good movie. I can objectively say that it's a fun movie and it's a good Christmas movie, but I never want to watch it. I don't want to show it to Mike. I just resent it. Hmm. You're you're kind of the target. Uh, yeah. You're the demographic that discovered that movie and- And loved it. And, and locked into yeah, it. Yeah, but I'm just, I identify with, you know, 
any younger generation or whatever, whoever feels oppressed by that movie and not a huge fan. Well, there's always that wonderful feeling when something's not popular of discovering it. I remember discovering the VHS of Shawshank Redemption. Now Shawshank Redemption is just everybody has to watch the Shawshank Redemption. It's not as special. Same thing. I think it's a wonderful life, actually. Everything, you know, the stars just aligned perfectly because it became ubiquitous. Everybody locked into it and said, this is great. This is a Christmas classic. And then just at the right time, it became not ubiquitous and it reserved some of its specialness. It actually can't play on TV ad nauseum. People have to pay for it, which means it does show up every year, of course. But it's more along the lines of something like a Wizard of Oz or something like that, where it's an event when, you know, I mean, nothing's an event anymore on TV because we all have streaming, but it's like you have to take a step to watch the movie. You you can't just yeah. see it everywhere like you do with Christmas Story or certain other things. Uh, how on earth did we get onto all of that? Oh, I was just saying the black and white really works for this movie. It really and the chintzy special effects and some of the stuff like that. It makes it more elemental. It makes it more symbolic. It, it's the same thing with Casablanca starts with that stupid model globe and then our heroes are going to be outside an airport that's going to be represented by a spotlight that's just going to randomly it's like this is all (laughs) an abstraction this is not how it would feel to be in casablanca this is a a set (laughs) with a spotlight yeah but it becomes universal precisely because it's not specific we lose a lot i think in modern movies when we demand realism in our special effects and in our sets there's a kind of artifice that actually draws us deeper into the story and that's what something yeah well and then what's frustrating is that the people who understand or seem to understand that are just gross and so they end up doing like wes anderson it's exactly what i was like wes anderson or even a tim burton or uh i was imagining some of the same stuff maybe in the way you were describing the modern emma Mm. a certain kind of like whimsy that's actually just super self-absorbed and Mm -hmm. not actually about yeah, I mean, I think yeah, it, that, that is serving true. the purpose of the story, but, you know, it just feels narcissistic or whatever. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I yeah. like I like bold style choices, and I like when people don't feel bound by realism, but there is something self-absorbed about Wes Anderson, about Tim Burton, about that Emma movie, uh, all of which I like. But what's maybe different here is that it's not like they're trying. They're not rubbing your face. It, like, Tim Burton's like, it's fake. It's You're, you're in my head. You're, you've entered into the Burton land. Well, Isn't yeah. it magical? <laughs> yeah. And here they're constrained by limitations. And so they've got to... Yeah, they're just telling a story. And yeah. Bedford Falls happens to be a little bit different than the real Bedford Falls would be. There's things that become symbolic. You know, it's like Casablanca. They're not trying to... Like Citizen Kane is obviously the other one that I'm thinking of where so much of it is smoke and mirrors. A lot of it's just because they're trying to hide the fact that they don't have infinite resources. But it ends up creating this kind of dream space where the story is not tethered to a particular reality. Bedford Falls can become the platonic ideal of every small town in a way that it couldn't if there was more realism mm-hmm. and specificity to it. Mm-hmm. So I guess we're up to the Mr. Glower scene. Gower. 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 Mr. Gower. Yeah, not Mr. Glower. That's because he glowers. He glowers. Yeah. It's true. Which is a devastating scene. (laughs) Yep. Yes, it is. I don't know what else to say about it besides I thought, I'm not going to cry at this old canard again. (laughs) And it's just like. (laughs) Yes, you are. (laughs) It is so dark and so sad. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> Merry Christmas, everybody. <laughs> His son died. <laughs> so he's super drunk in the back of the store. Oh. And he's going to accidentally kill someone by giving him the wrong pills. And George is going to catch the mistake, and then he's going to get beaten until his ear starts bleeding. <laughs> bleeding. <laughs> yeah. I, I knew that I was in for it when I just started losing myself at the Mr. Gower scene because I, it was the same thing. It was like, I've been through this before. This is not the place anymore for me to... And I was like, uh. Yes, it is. It's like, dang it. This whole movie is not going to go well. Like, I'm not going to... That, that scene always gets me, and I, obviously it's a sad scene, but th- it gets me in a way that's out of proportion, maybe, to my mind, with how sad it is. Like, it feels like the kind of scene that I should be able to watch without being destroyed. That scene always destroys me. It's one of the top <laughs> well, two or three dest- destructive scenes in the yeah, movie. Part, but, of, oh, yeah. part of why it does that is because it brings dad into it. Yeah. Like, and even if you're not thinking of the text of that, the fact is... You've had all this stuff set up with Violet and Mary and is this your hurt ear, George Bailey, I'll love you to the day I die and coconuts and National mm-hmm. Geographic mm-hmm. Society. All this stuff has happened. And meanwhile, drunken Mr. Gower is George not paid to be paid to be a canary. Yeah. You know, <laughs> like all <laughs> that happens. Sure. And you've got Ask Dad, ask dad he sign. He mm-hmm. ask dad he knows sign is there the whole time, yeah, yeah. right? And then George sees it and he's like going, he's got to get through and he's going to bust through Uncle Billy and he's going to get in there with Potter and his dad having this thing happen and it's establishing all this other stuff that's happening. <laughs> and then happening. he's going to kind of brashly push Mr. Potter. I noticed that for the first time this viewing <laughs> actually pushes him. <laughs> yeah. I, I never he's saw that before. He's bigger than you. <laughs> he's bigger than you. get that like sun yeah. pride and the, but he's let down. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. And you don't feel bad about Peter, Bailey. You don't feel bad about dad exactly but dad doesn't understand the gravity of what's happening it all falls on george and he's not even meaning to do anything he just goes back to the drugstore has no idea what's gonna happen Mm -hmm. yeah i mean i'm sure some of the emotion is you've seen the movie before so you know this is gonna be george bailey's life like yeah he's always gonna do the right thing there's never like been the megan's big take there's never gonna be a father figure who can just come in and save the day for him he's always just gonna have to take it on his shoulders and right (laughs) he's gonna be beaten until his ear bleeds well it's funny that that actually mr gower is the second best father figure he has maybe actually that might be the most important father-son scene there not that he goes to his dad who can't help him Mm -hmm. at that moment but him and mr gower it's actually like George is being his son. Yeah. yeah. And George is taking it. Mr. Gower's going to treat George like a son from that. From then it, on. It, from, they, from, they're bonded from, from that moment on, yeah. right? From like, then on. Yeah, it, it's so powerful it's, enough that the, I almost think the movie misses a beat by not playing into it a little bit more, having a little bit more of a payoff with Mr. Gower, Gower. Mr. Gower down, yeah. well, it, down the line. I mean, it tries to, in the next scene, with, he you know, the, he's the one that buys him the big mm, luggage case and has right. it monogrammed yeah 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 there's a nice through line for mr gower i'm not mm-hmm. really complaining so much as observing that i think the movie actually was more successful in wringing emotion out of that scene than maybe if you knew how hard that scene was gonna hit <laughs> you you might write the movie more to 
Yeah, convert around it a little bit. To capitalize, ca- to capitalize on it. <laughs> Sentimental <laughs> hogwash. Right. The movie does such a good job of capitalizing on every one of those moments. Yeah, exactly. It stacks all those moments and it's just constantly capitalizing on them. Yeah, yeah. So you just are like, I kind of like that they didn't come back and yeah, because they, they just move right on. Like in the next scene, Mr. Gower is still there and he's buying George the thing, but up oh, we're back on to dad and mm-hmm. Harry and mom. And life Annie, has moved on. George hit it. Mister, we're gonna hidden. have the fun dance scene, and mm. then he, he and Mary are gonna have a romance, and the house is gonna be there, and then Dad's gonna die. Yep, and everything's gonna change, and then that whole Potter thing with him and his dad pays off too. And yeah. it's like, well, we've been introduced to him, and now here he is, and now it's George versus Mister Potter, and Dad's not there. Yep, this time, and nobody else is, and nobody else wants to be. Nope. We're selling out unless you take the reins, George. Yep. The other thing that having seen that strong at the beginning does is it it really justifies Pottersville at the end. Like, we understand that this movie needs to set up in some really strong ways if it's not going to be cheesy. If it's not just going to be back to the future. If Biff gets the book, then all of civilization <laughs> falls apart. <laughs> if, if, if this idiot mechanic... <laughs> you need to constantly through the movie... Not just at the very end, but through the movie, you need to see it lurking under Bedford Falls the whole time. You need to understand that this kindly old druggist almost poisoned somebody to death because he was drunk. Violet really is this way. Bert, Bert, he's not, it's not just in the alternate reality. He actually is the kind of guy that in the wrong situation would just pull out his gun in a crowd and start (laughs) blasting away. These people... You know, there but for the grace of God go all of them, mm-hmm. actually. Yeah. Oh, that tension is always at play through the whole movie, and that scene sets it up really nicely. It's not just that George Bailey is always always has to hold the forces of darkness. It's it's not bay. it's not like everyone's basically a decent person. No. Then they're gonna be okay. Ma Bailey is, a, just is a sweet old lady. Actually, she's a she could be a completely bitter, nasty, horrible. Well, you old know lady. what? If her only son died. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. as a child and then her husband died after sinking his life into a useless venture and her and then useless it got this, brother and uh, yeah runs the the business into the ground and it's what she left with like and so there are a thousand little grace notes in all of our lives that keep it from sinking to the pottersville alt mm-hmm. reality in as much as it wants to pin all of those grace notes in bedford falls on one man okay it's not true but it's still true. It's, like, it's a good fable. It's, yeah. it's, a, good it's a good fable. way of saying we all have those things. Yeah. yeah. And it's also a good way of pointing out that sometimes there are those kinds of people, actually. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's why you brought up our friend who died not long ago. He really feels like one of those kinds of people. Like he was just, he just really did mean that much to that many people. He held up mm-hmm. a lot of things. Everybody felt he was special to them. You know, sometimes... People, there are people that are like that. Right. And, you know, we don't have to make a bigger deal out of it than it is. We don't have to be the Gospel Coalition and, you know, see the gospel in this movie. But <laughs> insofar as this movie is morally instructive and helpful, it's because it makes you want to be that kind of person and because it makes you, just for a second, nobody can watch this movie without thinking, oh boy, I'm glad that God smiled here or there on my life. I'm glad I have this wife. I'm glad I yeah. have this job. I'm, I'm I complained about it all the time, but boy, imagine what my life might be like if I didn't have X, Y, or Z. It's Well, and then, you know, getting back to what we were saying earlier, because George 
is such a bad person, mm-hmm. <laughs> so angry, <laughs> doesn't actually love people, so so human, mm-hmm. so so every manish. You don't come away with this like you kind of says like I I, I kind of am George Bailey, and I kind of can be that for people from time to time, even if I suck, like, mm-hmm. <laughs> like it's, it's possible like to, to make a difference. Yeah. To, to be as bad as I know I am. Yeah. If, if yeah. it'll make some kind of difference. Yeah. You, you, I like, it's one of the reasons I don't like things like to kill a mockingbird as much. The movie version. I mean, you watch that and you're just like, well, I could never be Gregory Peck. I'm not Gregory Peck. Right. You watch this and it's like, well, I guess I could, complain and (laughs) take it out on my wife sometimes and kind of be a jerk but still do the right thing still do the right thing most of the time and god could smile on that and make something out of it maybe Mm -hmm. i'll never be as great as the movie points george bailey but i could sure try yeah yeah i can try to live in such a way that if i was in trouble people who loved me would want to help we slam forward we fast forward to George's life, we get that awesome Scorsese freeze frame of, yeah, I want a big one. <laughs> and then we have Clarence say, oh, I like him or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> I like him. I like George Bailey. Yeah, I deduct points for that. That's a little, that's laying it on a little thick movie. Um, <laughs> if, if we're allowed to admit that there's some things, there are maybe three moments I'm going to say are less than perfect in <laughs> this movie. Okay. I'll you know, you I'll just go ahead and say them. I think. When he shakes Mr. Potter's hand and then looks at his hand and yeah. he's got slime on it. That's stupid. Too too far. Uh, come on, movie. You can come up with something better than... Well, but I don't know that I mind that. I actually... Okay, so here's... You can see actually shaking Potter's hand being a turning point. I mean, he looked at it. Yeah, it's really the look. It's, it's like, the the, look. oh, there's slime on my hand that I don't... Yeah, but if he had just stopped while shaking Potter's hand... I don't know. That, that, I don't mind I, I think noticing. Plays. I think that plays. But yeah. I, I, I don't know. I don't know how much I mind. I feel like part of the deal with George is he, like we said already, he doesn't play himself like someone who knows how great he is or how bad he is. Mm-hmm. He just plays himself like someone who keeps forgetting himself. Right. And he doesn't have propriety, really. Like he doesn't have the right way of dealing with Potter. Right. He just will lose it right. with him. And I feel like that moment is like him being like, what? Well, I don't know. I, look, I, I think it really I helps to understand, it. to go back and actually translate, which I did. I don't know that I've ever, I don't think I've ever done this before, but to translate the offer yeah. that Potter is making, it's an 855% pay increase. Hmm. George says, I make $45 a week. He's willing to pay him 20000 a year. And that's just the base pay apart from, you know, business trips and whatever. That's an 855% pay increase. And so you take... If you make a hundred, that's being offered eight hundred fifty-five thousand dollars a year. Huh. If you make fifty, you know, or sixty, that's like being offered four hundred fifty, five hundred thousand dollars a year. That's stupid money. That's hard money to turn down. Yeah. And then George is going to have to go home after walking away from that and hear that his wife's pregnant. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Maybe the reason I don't like it, it's not because any of the things that are intrinsic to it that you guys are describing are bad. I just think the movie doesn't trust me as an audience member hmm. to get them yeah. without Jimmy Stewart holding his <laughs> hand up and looking at it. Yeah. I, I think if you just play it 4% more subtly. Maybe you're right. To me, I just, I fold it into what I, what I understand about George. Yeah. And, and, and you, yeah. So I, I I'll he hits things to, like I'll this hard. He's, he's, he doesn't have any, I think that's a good, that's a good read. He, he doesn't. 
he's never been able to deal with Mr. Potter no. in, a, in a good way. Like, if, no, you, if you were if you were Mary, you'd be at home saying, George, you've got to be civil to Mr. Potter when you see him on the street. You can't give him a giant Jimmy Stewart speech <laughs> about how he's a warped, frustrated <laughs> old man every time you guys run into each other. It's not accomplishing anything. Yeah. <laughs> Can you stop being such a blowhard? Yeah. So from that sort of, from that perspective, you know, George is just the kind of guy, he doesn't really know how to deal with this level of evil. And so his mode is yell at it or try to appease it. And he tries to appease it for a second. And then he just gets the willies. Well, but then if you think about it, like how many times, you know, the only way to get through something and come out on the right side is to overcompensate. Yep. Yep. Right. Mm. Like, you know you have to have that have some kind of fight or conflict, and so you go in with guns blazing because you're afraid of what'll happen if you don't. You back yourself into a corner, you shoot yourself in the foot by throwing it all out there on the table and blustering big and going hard, and then you can come back and kind of find yourself and moderate down the line, right? Like everybody does things like that in their lives, and so when you have somebody like a Mr. Potter, who owns the whole town and has conquered everybody, including the banks. Like, mm-hmm. how do you take, you know, your weak position into a room with somebody who has all the cards, except like with your fists high and kind of <laughs> like an idiot, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. I mean, I think if you think about it that way, like. No, no, no. I think, I, I think that plays. I, I, I still don't really need the the look at the hand. I, I agree but, with you. I cr- I kind of huh. cringed a little bit when I saw it too. Huh. I noted it as the thing that was like, oh, thanks, movie. I, yeah, I guess thanks. I'm, yeah, I, I'm an idiot. <laughs> it's like actually, you know what? I I'd seen it a million times, but I was figuring out again, and not, I wasn't remembering. I was figuring out again what's the moment, and it's going to be like when he touches his hand, mm-hmm. his cold old man hand that. He would never. Right. He's going to realize he's just shook hands with the devil. Right. Hmm. Maybe yes. if Mr. Potter was actually played 5% more sympathetically, the moment would land too. If you actually knew that George was overcompensating there because Potter, in fact, wasn't the devil. He was just a warped and frustrated old man. But the movie kind of plays Mr. Potter as the, the devil. devil. Oh, yep. yeah. So, and, and therefore that moment kind of plays like, Oh no, I've got sulfur on my hand. I've got the well, slime. Yeah, I of- mean, we just like, we just came from George Bailey is creating prosperity among the working class and it's devastating <laughs> to your business. You need to keep them under your thumb in the That's slums, right. paying rent. And he's like trying to figure out what to do about it. And the next thing is, you know, George, you're a bright young man. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to, the whole kingdom. You have. Beaten me, George? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. I love, I, I can't think of any other examples of this off the top of my head, but anytime a villain has to try and play straight or play avuncular and they really suck at it. <laughs> uh, you've beaten me. You've beaten me, George. <laughs> He's trying to put on his, his angel mask for a second and just failing miserably. <laughs> kind of makes, kind of makes you love Mr. Potter. Yeah. I also like that he also, part of the sophistication of that scene is he still shows some teeth. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. Potter or? Potter does. Potter yeah. Potter's yeah. still like. So-called, is that the scene where he says? No, no. That, that's the that's funeral the scene. He's, he's like portraying some sour grapes about the fact. Like, mm-hmm. and some like, your stupid building and loan's been a thorn in my side and mm-hmm. I hate it. 
is sort of the attitude, and I can't. Yeah, that's right. It's like, hey, George, I'm leveling with you. I am kind of nasty, but I'm leveling with you. We right. can mm-hmm. talk, you and yeah. I. Yeah, I am, which is a better I, pitch, I'm, a smarter I'm, pitch from Potter than oh, it yeah. exactly. Yeah, it yeah. just it's just that layer of sophistication. Yep, huh. I am kind of the nasty person you think I am, <laughs> but I know when I've lost. Okay, so uh, George has the conversation with his dad. I think that that's, not, you know, like the, you want to shock Pop? I think you're a great guy. <laughs> that whole... It's about time one of you two lugheads said it. <laughs> <laughs> ah, <laughs> racial stereotyping at its finest. <laughs> uh, yeah. What's that character's name? Annie. Minnie. Annie. Did you hear that, Annie? <laughs> <laughs> Why don't you pull up a chair, Annie? <laughs> <laughs> <Be> more comfortable. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, well, it is. I would if I thought I'd hear anything worth saying or whatever she says. <laughs> That's right. Something like that. Yeah. Well, there, there again, Jimmy Stewart plays it just right because you could tell like, yeah, he's got an affectionate kidding relationship with Annie, but he was also probably been a thorn in her side as a little kid, like growing up mm-hmm. and all that sort of stuff yeah. and with his dad. They love each other. It's sentimental, but it's not corny. George is complaining about the shabby old <laughs> town and the shabby. Uh, it couldn't be cooped up in a shabby old office. And yeah, really hurting his dad's feelings and, without. Yeah, and then dad's just sort of taking it. Yeah, just being real stoic. It's yeah. not just you want to shock pop. I think you're a great guy. It's it's a lot of other things that get us there. Yeah, which saves this movie from being corny in the way yeah. that some people I, I i just don't think this movie is corny i think no it's not there's it's a handful not. of moments the shake with mr potter what was the one that even got us to talking about that something with clarence probably it, well it's where clarence says i like george bailey that one never bothered me either but well yeah it's yeah, yeah. it is, it's because clarence is corny well clarence is it's corny like and tells you so. jimmy stewart actually lives up to it like yeah jimmy stewart is that likable at the end of the day there is just something about having a true movie star playing the part and hmm. jimmy stewart you just like him he made a lot of money off of that fact he 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 made a career out of the fact that you look at him and you like him that, that's that is why we pay jimmy stewart and why we continue to support his mm-hmm. family or whoever makes rights off of the the royalties <laughs> so it just kind of works yeah just kind of i know i always i mean this isn't you know racially sensitive or whatever but Whenever you have someone who lives in your house and is the help, or mm-hmm. maybe not lives in your house, but who's there, you know, they become a part of the family. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you can tell that Annie has her own opinions about everything. And, and can su- express them. And, and can express them and supports the discipline of the parents yep. on the yep. children. You can tell all those things. And I think that that's sweet. And that's not a demeaning way right. to portray I, someone who's I, a servant in your I house. I don't think it's demeaning at all. You can see it as a white black power dynamic if you want, but if you want to t- flip on the fresh prints of Bel Air, you can see Jeffrey, mm-hmm. the oh. black butler in a black home, fulfilling the same kind of function. Mm-hmm. Or Alice in the Brady Bunch. Or I Alice mean, in the Brady Bunch, exactly. It's Aww. a stock type, and it's a stock type that doesn't just belong to the anti-Bell himself, then Gone with the Wind, all that sort of thing. It belongs to a French drawing room comedy. It belongs to plays like The Servant, who is in the place of observer and commenter, the Greek chorus. Yeah. This goes back to Sophocles and Euripides and these guys. Well, it's, called, it's, it's, it's what Woodhouse riffs on, even. It, yeah, exactly. Right? Woodhouse like, is making a joke out of Jeeves actually is the agent, not the... Yeah, yeah, but he's... That's right. But it's because... That the, goes, that's a type that goes way back. Yeah, like the butler kind of who thing. just kind of comments is there to comment or there to. Yeah, and you see it in Shakespeare. And, yeah, it, exactly. He's just there to tell well, you something about George or something about his dad. Like, yep. Yeah. This movie, by the way, is so generous with. I, I don't think a modern movie stacks 
the story with as many great little supporting characters just to add yeah color. well they and they do Man. such a good job with creating these little colorful characters that move in and out in and out in and out that you know when they parade them for you at the be- at the end of the movie like it's like you grew you, up with them yeah you get that <laughs> so you get that same sense that so you crazy. it really evokes that feeling that george would have at that moment right like of this is my hey, family i, I remember <laughs> yeah like yeah. yeah i remember this like and then they all have their little moment like I was saving this up for, for divorce, divorce in case, case I, I ever had, had a husband. husband. Like, like what a great little, <laughs> like in writing, keeping so, with just like the sass that they developed for Annie and that little, that one little scene around the table. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you said earlier, Jake, you wouldn't mind being a supporting, you know, just playing a bit role in this on stage. I think it'd be super fun. Well, it would be fun. And it's because the bit roles are all fun. There's nothing, there's, you watch like a, I don't know. I don't know what a good example is, but you watch a modern movie and it's like, it's written to make Tom Cruise and two or three other people look good. Yeah. Somebody like Jim or Jimmy Stewart is so selfless in that the jokes, I mean, he knows he's going to look good if the movie looks good, if the story looks good, if the character, if, if, if we lock into the story, then that's what makes Jimmy Stewart look good and makes Jimmy Stewart get a bigger paycheck next yep. time. And so he doesn't have to have the punchline. He almost never has the punchline in the seat. It'll always be, no matter how emotional the situation is, there'll be some dumb, observer the guy kiss her already they got that guy you got the <laughs> you got bird and ernie you got bird and ernie who are wonderful you have the random guy that's there to react to clarence after their you know oh, yeah. the right. guy yeah. that's yeah. just gonna fall out of his seat <laughs> that, that <laughs> guy is, guy. is yeah. that guy is stealing moments where jimmy stewart could be mm-hmm. uh charming Giving the face yeah where, where clarence could be providing the color but the movie's like we don't need that we, we need the townsfolk to all provide the color and the charm yeah, uh, it's the same thing. You know, you watch Casablanca and the generosity of, or, or Citizen Kane, any of the great movies that we remember from the studio system. They just had the stable of actors, and they would give them all something fun or cute or interesting to do, and it brings so much life and vitality. Well, 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 the the only thing really to compare that with now is certain like modern sitcoms, like The Office or Community. Yeah, I, I think I think those are good comparison points. Right, yeah. where you, where you have yeah. this this stable of actors, they're, you're gonna they're gonna be at least in the background every episode. Not even every episode will you get them. Maybe they'll have one speaking line. Yeah, an episode, and then some episodes you'll give them a bunch of speaking lines, but usually not. Right, but they'll always be there and provide the context and the color. But yeah. the, the Office is a great comparison point because you have characters that really are archetypes or types at the very least right. and so you can't sustain a whole episode with this lady but you right. can cut to her for her one joke <laughs> and and that's how a movie like this works we have people at the time and even us today i think we have sort of relationships with these character actors because we've seen them in other things they always play the same kinds of parts yeah and so it's like okay we're gonna cut to this guy and he's gonna do his thing. He plays the gruff but lovable cop. He plays right. the avuncular Uncle Billy kind uh-huh. of Violet. I mean, it's Gloria Graham's a good example. Everybody knew her as the tart of the time. Yeah. And so she comes and does her tarty thing and we make and we score a couple points off of that. Yeah. And then we move on with our lives. Gloria Graham doesn't have to be the star of the movie. But yeah, that's just so much fun. Yeah. I really love it. Yeah. I really, really love it. And, uh, you know, when you watch an old movie like that and you can think to yourself, I mean, not that lots of people have this thought, but wouldn't it be fun to play Bert or to play Ernie or to play Martini or to play Mr. Gower or to play whatever? Like, 
wouldn't that be fun? Like, and what you're not thinking is, wouldn't it be fun to play George Bailey? No, it'd be really hard to play George Bailey. <laughs> yeah, really, that's hard. what you think. And man, the the only person you'd ever imagine yourself trying to play is the lead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. right. Like, well, and you hear all these stories about because everybody else is a zero. Yeah, well, you hear stories about like the color is in the scene, and then Cruz or Pitt or whoever it is gets to, gets on on set, and they say, "Well, that's a good line." Don't you, don't you kind of think that? Uh, Ethan Hunt would actually say that line. <laughs> and what can the director and everybody do but say, yeah, I guess, uh, I guess so. I guess Ethan Hunt would say the, would have the punchline in this scene. I guess that makes sense. But it's so much more richer of a world when yeah. you don't have the hero always have to do everything and provide his own, <laughs> his yep. own color. It's actually, it's a piece of writing advice that I've always tried to keep in mind that Raymond Chandler gave when he was talking to, so they were adapting Philip Marlowe into a radio show. And you can read a letter that Chandler wrote to the radio writers about how to write Marlowe. And Marlowe, of course, is a famous quipster, kind of tough guy character. And Chandler said, Marlowe should never have the blow to a scene. He should never end. He should never get the last word because people are going to resent that. It's going to just make him into a wish fulfillment hero. Whereas you have him on his heels, you have him always get one upped in the scene. People are going to really love the character and when the character scores when you want to give him a great line it's going to feel really potent it's going to feel like yeah he just connected that punch because he's not doing it all the time Mm -hmm. actually Uh it feels like it was just wrung out of him in the moment when he finally just like dunks on somebody yeah and it's something that i think somebody like aaron sorkin doesn't quite understand like if everybody's dunking on everybody all the time then actually nobody's (laughs) Nobody's dunking on anybody (laughs) (laughs) maybe we've just uh put in uh six foot hoops yeah exactly (laughs) and there's nothing impressive about anything that's going on here yeah we we put uh gutter guards in our bowling (laughs) lane so everybody's getting strikes wow it's it's the moral of the incredibles (laughs) Come, come home to roost or something. Yeah, exactly. When <laughs> everyone's super, it's no Anne Rindy will be. <laughs> yeah, you can have witty stories where everyone has something colorful or interesting to do, and where the hero has a lot of colorful, interesting, witty things to do. This is one of them. It's a Wonderful Life is a wonderfully dense, literate, witty script, but we don't pile it all onto George Bailey. We give moments where he doesn't really know what to do or what to say, and we let other people have the have the punchline. So. It's just, it's, it's smart writing and it's something that people don't do as much anymore. So I think we're to the big dance. Yep. The introduction of Donna Reed. I mean, I will just reiterate, it's a tough role that she has to play. She is playing a type. She is playing a symbol. She's not really playing a flesh and blood woman, but she gives a lot of flesh and blood to it. Yep. Pretty awesome. You get the immortal alfalfa. Mm Mm-hmm. For a few minutes, yeah, yeah, yeah. that's him, isn't it? He's the is he the one that's dancing with her? Yeah, yeah. Well, he's not what? dancing; he's just like talking her ear. Now off. to continue my story, <laughs> oh, why don't I'm you go s- annoy somebody else? Oh, I'm sorry. Hey, hey. <laughs> <laughs> this is great. Once again, George, not a very nice guy, actually. <laughs> no, <laughs> you appreciate him for it. Get this little twerp out of her life. <laughs> yeah. I oftentimes don't like it in this era or into the 50s. Like Howard Hawks, the famous, the great director, he always made the woman pursue the man because he thought that that was more interesting and more sort of sexually charged and more alpha male. Like in Rio Bravo, let's have Angela, uh, oh, what's her name? Let's have the the leading lady of that movie. I forget what her name is. Policewoman, whatever it is. Go after John Wayne. Let's have her, like it, it weakens John Wayne to have him pursue the lady 
let's have the lady just be throwing herself throwing herself at him i oftentimes don't like that because it feels like a macho fantasy of a certain kind of post-war era frankly i mean not to get all like toxic masculinity but Mm -hmm. it feels like yeah wouldn't that be great if the sexiest woman in the world thought i was great and wanted to throw herself (laughs) there's a lot of john wayne movies it's a lot of cary grant movies and it, and it does something for Wayne and for Grant's characters in those movies that they're not, especially as they got older and their co-stars stayed the same age. Mm. It was a little less creepy. It's one of the ways you solve the problem. And when you have a 25-year-old ingenue and you've got a 60-year-old hero. A la Tom Cruise. A la Tom Cruise. Have the woman movies. have the woman throw herself at him. It's going to feel less creepy that way. Yeah. If Audrey Hepburn's actually the one that's into Cary Grant. But I don't really like it. I think it works here really well, though, to have Mary know exactly what she wants yep and to want george i think i think it adds a lot to the story maybe just because it culminates with the telephone scene where george is actually frustrated by that yep where we Mm -hmm. it's actually like nah george wouldn't actually want you if you really were completely the pursuer at the end of the Mm -hmm. day this movie has enough sense about the way that these kinds of relationships relationships between men and women work that's going to say at the end of the day if you keep doing that george is going to get angry feel impotent and shut it down. But the fact that we get those private moments of Mary, I mean, I think basically the reason I'm thinking of this is because when, when we introduce her, we see Donna Reed's face in glorious close up. Yeah. And she's so like the little softening touch thing that they do. Yeah. 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 They, 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 they would literally put a little filled, veil of filled, like a, a basically a veil over the camera when they <laughs> shot <laughs> yeah. pretty ladies. It's really funny to watch old movies. It'll suddenly go <laughs> real soft and weird because <laughs> They didn't have, uh, you know, Instagram filters back then. So they had to put gauze over the camera so that their ladies would look as beautiful as they wanted to. But she smiles and she sees George and she's going to go after him. It, it humanizes Mary to have her be the more of the aggressor in these early scenes. And it humanizes George to have him be a little off of his game. Mm-hmm. Well, he didn't want to be there in the first place and he didn't want to dance with her and... Mm-hmm. He's getting ready to go. He's getting ready to go off to college and yep. maybe have a little fling or something like that. Is not. There's Mary Hatch, the girl that used to annoy him in the yeah soda shop or whatever. So he's on his heels from the beginning, and then and then she plays to that. She plays to that all the way through the dance scene, all the way through to you know I'm gonna walk away and sing Buffalo Gals. Mm. You know. <laughs> oh man, when she tries to bring Buffalo Gals back. Oh yeah! He's oh, having what oh, a painful moment! Oh man! And he's oh, so mean man. about it. He it's is awful. awful. Oh, it's so bad. Yeah, like George. It is one of the most painful. Well, it is the most painful scene of the whole movie for that reason. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe it's not, but I yeah. think it's just one of those embarrassing Oof. moments that we've all either accidentally committed that sin or seen somebody else or had it done to us, where somebody else put a ton of ton of time and attention and meaning and into something and then <laughs> and we wanted to give them the message that that's too much yeah <laughs> <laughs> that meant nothing to me <laughs> yeah uh, it starts the record she sets up the picture of george lasso in the moon, the moon yeah. and oh and yeah you, you you can see her giving him latitude about kicking the gate she's like that's okay it's gonna be all right we're still gonna have a good time even though you're mad about something and yet but we're not it is completely overbearing Uh, yeah as a man it's like i get it exactly i would hate her in that moment actually and everything sweet that she did would just be another yeah 
claw to my face like yeah. stop it stop trying i am not in the mood right now <laughs> <laughs> why don't you take a step back it's and, four years you know. later mary <laughs> yeah <laughs> and if you're really interested in this why don't you try playing hard to get once like why, why don't you why don't you let me come after you like stop it stop conspiring with my mother to get me right like, like do not do that bad and you combine that with all the other rage and impotence he has about his whole life and it's like <laughs> yeah i mean he's just picked you know harry up from the train station earlier that mm-hmm. day and what kind of job is it is it a good job and then you have mary's mother who's, oh yeah who's hilarious yeah she's but, great but you can feel the <laughs> the anger <laughs> <laughs> yeah she's so disappointed <laughs> Oh, I was thinking of George's anger at her. Just oh, like, oh, yeah, just, yeah. Like, just like adding. Yeah, just yeah. like, this is ridiculous. Like, no. Well, and then she's mad at her mom. He's making violent love to me, mother. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. She's just like, That's a good everybody's like, there's all kinds of tension going on. Yeah. Here. Just, oh, man. Sam yeah. Wainwright's on the phone. <laughs> <laughs> Hello. It's Mary. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, hee-haw, Sam, Sam is waiting. <laughs> <laughs> it's awful. And then we cut to Sam and we see who Sam really is. Yep, yep, yep. Yeah. That's, that Sam. might be stacking the deck just a tad. Yeah. But it's a, yeah, yeah, Sam's, Sam comes through with like twenty or $25,000 or something ridiculous in the end. In the end, he does, yeah. Well, and it's not stacking the deck because Sam just, he represents everything that George thought he wanted. And he has to through the whole movie. Just right. when George doesn't want to settle down with Mary, but would like to be living the high life with a bunch of showgirls around him exactly that's exactly what sam is doing exactly right and then when george and mary are there you know with the house for nick martini or whatever yeah um, sam and his current floozy come through they come through on a the way to florida florida yeah and hey can't you just pick up and come with us right now (laughs) what a jerk (laughs) (laughs) hey you should come you should hey it'd be great let's go (laughs) we can't do that yeah our lives aren't like your life wouldn't it be great? I don't know. And then George kicks the door of the car like he kicked the gate. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, man, this movie this movie gets it. <laughs> and, and then he's going to get offered the job and he's going to turn it down and then he's yep. going to find out that they're pregnant. And it's just like blow after blow after blow for poor George. Poor George, Bailey. Yeah. I like the tastefulness of the movie sort of cutting away before. As, as someone who just went through learning that his wife was pregnant and trying to have the right response but also and being genuinely excited about it but also thinking about money and <laughs> things like that yeah i thought the movie was tasteful how yeah we didn't get a big scene of george being really happy like, it felt no, like we sweet. sort of drew a modesty panel over george like bailey lasso stork yeah <laughs> yep cut scene yeah. <laughs> well it, that, that's really funny too mary at her most whimsical and punch drunk is yeah, like, yeah. Ha, ha, ha. <laughs> it's like it's really great yeah no mary she really de- she really emerges as a fully uh fleshed out character i think just the way that donna reed plays her and, and i don't know that we've said enough how perfect donna reed is for this this role she's just just exactly like jimmy stewart she's right at the right age where she can play in a, a range of ages yeah and i like that she's a little bit more uh how does one say it a little bit more womanly a little bit she actually feels mature for her age, mm-hmm. even in the young scenes, as opposed to what you would, what you, I'm, you'd never today peg her as being in her twenties. Never. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Not once she becomes George's wife, you could maybe, she does play the high, the innocent high school girl just fine, but you would never 
peg her as being in her 20s by the time she gets all matronly and stuff like that like well i think so many movies of the era would have cast for the high school girl which and made her play up, and then make it made her play up they actually cast i think for the wife and made her play down and i think it's yeah, a, yeah. a really smart choice especially since she generally is the mature one in any situation mm-hmm. yep it, you you cast a 20 year old in that role who really does feel like she's stupid enough to just adore george bailey un thinkingly mm-hmm. the role doesn't work nearly as well like mary she knows what she's she's getting she really likes george and she locked into george at a young age <laughs> at a young age she's aware of his faults but she's yeah she's not stupid or blind to who george is she knows no, she's watched him she, she knows, knows what she's getting and she knows his strengths and she knows his weaknesses yeah she knows what she likes she knows what she doesn't like and she's got a plan for mitigating the things that she doesn't like mm. and mm. you see it like you see it in action yeah. And even that is just another layer of development to the way the whole movie works. Like, this isn't the first time that George has come home cranky from the office. Mm-hmm. Normally, it works just fine to take him into the kitchen. Tonight, that's not working. Right. Like, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and that's how relationships work. I, I'm just imagining maybe some people are listening and they're like, yuck. So the movie is all about how women should enable men to be jerks. And you guys are okay with that? Hashtag tax toxic masculinity. <laughs> no. No, we're not okay with no. that. No, but what happened is what you have to imagine happening if is, hey, he's in a foul mood. Something bad has happened at work. He needs some space to go and decompress and he'll come back apologetic and sorry about it like he always does or like he often does, but I'm just going to create the space. I'm going to get him out of the room. I'm going to minimize the damage now. Mm-hmm. And... He'll come down. Like, it'll be okay. Like, we all have our moments. Mm. And we all know how to, you know know when you need to remove yourself from a situation and go Mm -hmm. deal with yourself and deal with God. And they're not bringing God into the moment, but just the same. I don't want the kids. Let's just get into the kitchen, George. Mm -hmm. Let's just get into the kitchen. And Tommy, stop following us. Right. (laughs) We need need some space right now. Mm Mm-hmm. That I think that's just being a good wife. Yeah. And that's not enabling anything necessarily. No, it can be. It can be enabling things if you're just always sort of like, if you're never dealing with anything. But you see Mary in the same scene. George goes, George has gone too far. Like, we're not mitigating this anymore. Mm-hmm. Like, George, you have to stop. Stop torturing the children. Mm-hmm. Like, so she's got her, she's got lines. Yeah. And it's right and good and appropriate for her to have lines and be able to say that to him. And yeah. to be able to say it to him in front of the kids at times, like, yeah, it all worked. I mean, if she was married to Nick, the bartender, and she was making space for all of, for Nick to be like Nick in, in, in Pottersville, <laughs> it'd be one thing. That but would be one thing. That would be one thing. Yeah. We as movie watchers are supposed to understand George is actually a pretty good guy. He, he does come home like this sometimes, but he apologizes. He works through yeah. it. They have a good marriage. And I've, you see it in the kids. Like the kids don't expect, like- I they mean, they think that they, they think, have a right to their dad's attention and time yeah, and interest yep. and, they, and and that should be there because it's supposed to communicate something about how George normally is. Well, he, e- even even the way that they kind of shrug off his clearly irritated mood at first yeah. is a good sign. We kn- we know our dad and we're not worried about it. He's not nasty. Sometimes yeah. he's a little short with us. Yeah, yeah, which we've seen through the whole movie. One of George's <laughs> sins is he's short with people. Go stop annoying people. <laughs> George has always been short with people. <laughs> hey! <laughs> but you also, as you guys were saying, you get the impression George 
he's the kind of guy that would listen to his daughter play the piano for a little bit and then yeah. he'd probably be done with it. He's, yep. he's, he's not today's lame dad. He's a dad of the era, but he wants to see the flowers. He gives Zuzu some time, even in his darkest moment, he goes up and sees her and has a sweet little moment and takes her petals. You know, I mean, yeah, I really love those moments where it's like, he's not feeling sweet. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> but He's still going to go see his daughter. He, what he's not going to do is wait till he gets 100% right. Mm-hmm. No. And part of it, too, is like, it's complicated. But that, again, that complexity is great. Like, he's also just sort of retreating. Yeah. Yeah. He's retreating. Right? He's, he's withdrawing. He's retreating. He's just going to go see the sick little girl. He's asking yep. his daughter to comfort him a little yep. bit. Yep. Yep. Mm. Well, but really, guys, we're back in the scene. We're the Buffalo gal slash infamous robe. <laughs> we, jumped, we jumped ahead. <laughs> yeah, we, we keep jumping ahead. There's just so much to talk about. The other, the other thing about their relationship is I think a lot of portraits of wives and of these kinds of relationships are so idealized in movies of this era. Like you have the saucy, you have like the Gloria Graham, Violet type character in mm-hmm. movies and film noirs. You, you have women that are sexual beings yeah. and you have actresses that were famous for playing those kinds of roles the most famous of course marilyn monroe in the 50s right. but when we see a woman who's supposed to be that virtuous be that virtuous it, it, a lot of times it's played pretty uh not sure what the best way to talk about it is a lot of the, the, like you think about ingrid bergman in casablanca she's a very spiritual creature she's a very emotional creature it's about her eyes it's hard to imagine actually Humphrey Bogart being such an earthy guy, what exactly the two of them talked about all, <laughs> all the time. <laughs> and we're supposed to understand that they had a, a lot of fireworks in their relationship. They had good chemistry, but the movie wisely gives us the aftermath and doesn't gives us, give us too much of the text of that. Because the math. The math, <laughs> math yeah. Because there, there actually wouldn't be a lot there. She's, she's more ethereal. Yeah. Mary, as played by Donna Reed, very down to earth, very, there's a lot of sexual chemistry. Really flirty whole scene between the two of them. Yeah. And you understand that their desire for each other is not just some kind of pie in the sky idealized. Uh, no, these are two young people that really want each other in the normal sort of a, a way. And, and we really play with that tension with the the robe scene. I'm over here in the hydrangea. In the, <laughs> this is a very interesting very situation. Interesting situation. <laughs> <laughs> See, I could, I could, I'll, I'll call the police. They'll be on my side. <laughs> They'd be on my side. They're across town. They'd be on my side. <laughs> Jimmy Stewart I, at, I his, at his absolute most charming there. <laughs> Not in Bedford Falls, anyway. <laughs> this sort of thing doesn't happen every day. <laughs> yeah. I mean, maybe that scene's even laying it a little bit too thick on with the it lays it on pretty thick. with the sexual tension. I mean, I, as a kid, I always felt like, "Whoa, <laughs> <laughs> this sort of thing doesn't happen in my life every day either." <laughs> but I kind of wish it would. I mean, it certainly taps into that. I think it's smart that the scene gets derailed. Like, yeah. there, oh, yeah. there's no there's no choice. You can that George only can do make. that scene if you're going to interrupt it with George's dad dying. Exactly. Yep. And so, yeah, that's smart. Yeah, yeah, yeah. smart writing. To completely take everybody out of that mood, that context. Right. And make them forget about it completely. And so, if you know that Uncle Billy's going to show up and Dad's going to die, you can toy with that sexual tension. Yeah. you There's there's no and there's no way to write the ending to that scene. Like, I, where, does he give it to her? Does he not give it? Like, there, there's no satisfying conclusion. 
is a win for. Well, and it doesn't end well. For, yeah, it doesn't end well for George. I mean, let's be honest. Like <laughs> she's hiding in the bush. Either she's George can only play with that tension for so long before it she becomes gets, bad. It, it goes bad, <laughs> right on him. Yeah, there's yep. there's any number of ways that they could write where it goes bad, but we don't want to see. Yeah, any of those. Yep, could end in sin. It could end in awkwardness. It could end in. George being lame, it could and in her hating his guts <laughs> right. and being totally disgusted and disillusioned by right. this pig of a man. <laughs> it's a charming yeah. little moment for as long as it lasts, and they make it last about as long as it possibly could. Uh, and then dad dies, and I guess in terms of boring characters, the dad the dad is about the least colorful character. Like if there was one part that you wouldn't be that interested in playing. On the stage production, Peter Bailey, the Peter Peter Bailey, he's more of a symbol, and they don't they don't flesh him out, yeah, much, yeah. But yeah. you just want to feel like there's weight behind George, and there's something controlling his destiny, other than stuff that he wants. Yeah, the dad does that, and you and you and the, you feel his at you feel the dad's absence in the movie pretty effectively. Like now, George doesn't have any dad to go to. Like yeah. that's it. It's all on you, George. It's all on you, George. The very ne- the next scene is the board scene, the famous one of Jimmy Stewart's twelve big speech. You're just a warped, frustrated old man. That the first Potter. of many showdowns with Mister Potter. The de- the detail. The one thing that I really got to thinking about that I never really thought much about is the choice to put Potter in a wheelchair, and I think it's a really effective choice in terms of making him a repulsive villain. He is so one note. But if you can give him one thing that's kind of humanizes him slash evokes a little bit of pity, it actually ramps up the the disgust factor. Yeah. Well, that's a really pretty great, exponentially. It's yeah. a really great moment from the first time we see Potter when it's Potter and Peter Bailey, and he tells his man to push him up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, yeah, push him forward. He can't lean forward as far as he wants. Push me forward. Push me forward. You right. Know? Yeah. So that he can get in in Peter's face. Like, but yeah. <laughs> And I guess the story, I mean, is the implication supposed to be this guy got polio or something? Like, he's just been taking revenge on the world for his whole life because like, we just don't know. Potter's just, we just the devil, yeah. basically. But it's, it, just a, it's just a wrinkle. It makes you ask that question. And I really think it does play with, if you can evoke just a little bit of pity for Mr. Potter, it makes you hate him a lot more. Like, you really hate a rat, but a rat caught in a trap that's chewing at its own leg, you hate that thing. A lot more precisely because it's weak. You kind of want to crush it. Mr. Potter. <laughs> Do you? I don't know about that. <laughs> I think I think if you think about Frankenstein and Dracula and the Wolfman as they're portrayed in the Universal Monster movies, if you think about great monsters, there's often just a smidge of pity that you're supposed to evoke obviously it's much more blatant with a character like frankenstein's monster who's designed to be actually mostly pitiful yeah but even with somebody like dracula if you can when the sun hits him you want to feel like not 50 percent bad not 40 percent bad but you want to feel two percent bad for him like oh he's it would suck to ne- never be able to ha, go, ha, go through a door with garlic it would suck <laughs> <laughs> all right uh, uh, i am a card yep anyway i just I don't know what went into their heads in terms of putting Potter in a wheelchair, but yeah. it's an interesting choice. Yeah. Uh, and then we have the return of Harry. The, Another thing about that yeah. scene that is interesting, it's a choice that they, they seem to always want to make, which is to throw in a little nuance, throw in mm-hmm. a little wrinkle, throw in a little truth 
with a lie. And so George doesn't have a problem with anything that Potter is saying at first. Right. It's just he crosses that line. George has to turn around and say, no, you're right. When you said my dad was no businessman, I know that everybody knows that. But I don't know why I felt the need to point that out, except it's just, it's so easy to not write in those mm-hmm. those wrinkles and not write in those. Yeah, if, if I'm writing this, it never occurs to me to have George acknowledge that Potter's right every every mm. every turn. Yeah. But the fact that George basically always agrees with Mr. Potter's assessment of everything yeah. like this is a crummy town these yeah. people are stupid and the, my the dad assessment's is a, the same it really does play like the we're not so very different you and i mm-hmm. you know, i think <laughs> the assessment is almost always the same right it's just the conclusion that you draw yeah george's conclusion is oh we have to dig in and we have to help and I'm, well i'm saying the most obvious thing in the world potters is different than that <laughs> we well, get to yeah. exploit <laughs> yeah it's like if the emperor could win over anakin then man what a henchman that would be, <laughs> right? That's the idea. That's kind of yeah, the dynamic. Really is, yeah, so, if he could yeah. get, yeah. Well, speaking of the emperor, the emperor took over the entire galaxy. And it is an interesting <laughs> wrinkle to me that Potter, who is the devil, is content to simply prey upon Bedford Falls. I mean, he takes over the draft board. Like Potter is capable of becoming the president of the world. He is capable of being Biff in Back to the Future Part Two. <laughs> But it is it is something that's particularly evil about Mr. Potter. I think that he is in he's fact fixated on Bedford. Falls. He's content with just destroying these little people. He, he doesn't he actually just, want to shoot. He any just kind higher. of wants what's his. I guess maybe he grew up in Bedford Falls. Seems like he did. Like he's just a fixture. Mm. It's not like he moved from out of town. No, Mr. Potter is a uh, definitely an institution. Yeah. Uh, so okay, we go to the scene where Harry gets back. That train scene. I just want to reiterate, watch Jimmy Stewart's face, watch his acting. You'll really appreciate it. Man, now I know where J.K. Rowling got it all from. The train? Potter, train, Harry. Wow. Potter, train, Harry. Dun, dun, dun. Snape was kind of a warped, frustrated old man. (laughs) Man, this is amazing. What was Harry but a warped, frustrated young man? Yeah, exactly. Dumbledore always kept that giant picture of himself in his office. Yeah. (laughs) That's not true. Um, well, maybe it is. I don't know. <laughs> train. So train scene. Yeah. Good scene. I think Jimmy Stewart's finest acting and the whole thing, certainly his subtlest yeah. acting, just watching him gather himself and make a choice to, to be happy for his brother instead of yeah feeling all the anger and sadness that he wants to feel. It's not like a scene that really makes you cry or anything. Uh, it does if you're crying through the whole movie, which maybe all three right. of us were, but it's not in and of itself a big dramatic moment but it's it's wonderfully it's observed such a good moment and acted yeah you know the punch mm-hmm. in the gut of meet the wife mm-hmm. you know then the what are we doing congratulations and then the moment between george and harry the and- wife is perfectly pitched by the way she's not she's not overbearing or obnoxious in a way that really punishes george for making the choice he does but she's also not just like so wonderful that of course george has to make she just seems to be a good woman. Yeah, she just seems normal and good. Yeah. It'd yeah. be it'd be easy to make a statement any number of directions. Yeah, well, with but how that you was cast the her. great thing is like Harry is sort of apologetic and knows that he screwed his brother over and he's gonna go get the luggage and then George is gonna go feel her out, mm-hmm. like you know, and feel out the job. And it's like okay, like she's just happy. Seems like a sweet girl, and 
it's a real good job and opportunity and she's just excited and she has no idea she's an innocent she doesn't deserve to be in george's crosshairs nope yeah so. it's good stuff so the next section which we've already touched on a lot of this is the whole final culmination of mary and george's courtship as it were we've been around that one I think, yeah, yeah i think we've talked through most of what there is there we've we've mined that deposit of gold you get that weird scene where Violet hits on him and then suddenly they're surrounded by... <laughs> yeah, that's a little contrived. Uh-huh. Whatever. Well, if if I was going to write like my college thesis on this movie, it would be like about the power of the observer or something like that. Because George <laughs> never has a dramatic moment in his life where he's not surrounded by Bedford Falls people. That movie, that's just the most contrived version <laughs> yeah. of it. That, that's almost kind of the horror movie where... Pretty sure you could see Michael Myers sneaking up if it wasn't for the fact that the camera was in a close-up. Exactly. So we, the audience, couldn't see him sneaking up. That's kind of the same. Like, I'm pretty sure you'd notice that 15 you people. Were just the two of you walking on the median, and then suddenly there's everybody. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Not sure what that, what, what does that scene there to accomplish, even? Like, it just kind of it keep, just, keep Violet in the mix. Well, and, it keeps Violet in the mix. It tells you that Violet doesn't understand george and that george is actually pretty frustrated i think it tells you more about george's state of mind i mean he is like mom's trying to point him to mary hatch and he's about to go run off and skinny dip with violet Mm -hmm. you know like he's he's just rebelling against everything then but he's also proposing it to her in such a way that will completely baffle he he despises her her yeah (laughs) it's just it's not genuine Although you or don't do you know, think I think is. the movie is open to question. No, I think it's, I think the I think movie intentionally is. makes it an open question. Would George okay. have done it if he, if Violet had said, "Yeah, yeah, of course." I, huh. Okay. Well, well, I the way that he sells it, I think he thinks it's super romantic. But he's also angry. I always feel he like he's angry. playing her. He, well, he's punishing Violet for being who she is. I mean, he definitely some some disdain is coming through there. But it's the kind of disdain that you could almost see somebody like Violet responding positively too so Mm -hmm. (laughs) okay i like when his mom in a a few minutes before that says she's a girl who help you find the answers help you find the answers yeah you could see your mom telling you that and you being like oh my goodness like i don't want to hear that i don't want to hear that (laughs) (laughs) but also what a romantic line like yeah isn't isn't that what we're all looking for yeah it's true one of the more uh, and his mom's right idealized statements in the movie perhaps but (laughs) i'm here for it uh, then I guess we've talked through the whole phone scene and I do love yep. any moment we can break away from George Bailey and get somebody's perspective. And it's a, it's a well earned and well-timed moment to just get Mary's perspective as she, she smashes that record as she's, mm-hmm. it's what saves Mary from the character of Mary from being more maudlin than she is. Like, yeah, this mm-hmm. is an angry woman who knew what she wanted, is not happy that she's, she's not- just as frustrated as George and she's not in a position, she can't, she can't just go get George. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And- She can't, she has to, George has to come. And the, her. her taking it out on her oppressive mother as the situation goes south with the, <laughs> he's making violent love to me, mother, or whatever it is. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty great. The, they color in that relationship really nicely in the space of- 60 seconds or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. And then isn't the mother crying at the wedding yes. in a way that does not look like <laughs> tears she of joy. Not happy. No. <laughs> she really That's wanted awesome. that Wainwright. Yeah. <laughs> she wanted a Wainwright in the family. Which you could forgive her for. No, it is a little weird because Sam Wainwright's going to take her away from Bedford Falls and she seems 
very much the widow. So, mm-hmm. but maybe she would just plan or hope to be able to go with her. So interesting. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I wish you, it works if you don't examine it. If you don't interrogate the text too much, it just works as the oppressive mother figure who's standing between the heroine and what she wants for the space of the scene. <sighs> so, wedding, bank run, famous yep. bank mm-hmm. run scene. It's a wonderful showcase for Jimmy Stewart to talk about how much Jimmy Stewart actually plays against his aw shucks persona in this movie and in most of his great roles. But this, that's a good scene for Jimmy Stewart to just do his Jimmy Stewart thing. Hop over the counter. Yep. And, you know, mediate that tension and also explain to people in the audience how banks work and buildings and loans work. I don't know. I found I always found that just sort of interesting as a kid. Yeah. Like that whole yeah, concept too. of like, wow, they don't have all the money in a vault. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was like, <laughs> I thought that was interesting as a kid. For yeah. such a fable-like uh, story, it's... it's the same thing with Casablanca and there's all the business about the letters of transfer and everything. These stories are so simple and so elemental and yet they have these details that, as, especially watching it as a kid, you're like, I don't understand that at all and it seems kind of, this is so completely of the world of adults and mm-hmm. yep. it adds a little bit of a mystique and interest to it that it wouldn't yeah. otherwise have. And kids can enjoy these. It just, kids don't have to understand. You can, you can make oh, emotional wait. sense of something like that without making literal sense of it. You don't yeah. really need to know exactly what's at stake to know Mr. Potter's bad and he's got George on the ropes and yeah. uncle Billy did something dumb. That's yeah. That's all you really need to understand. But the stu- the other stuff does work as just window dressing and, Color, I guess that's the word of this podcast. Well, Uncle Uncle Billy didn't necessarily do anything dumb by closing the doors. What else was he going to do? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess I, I was, yeah. I was, I was fast forwarding again to Uncle Billy okay. doing the dumbest thing that, but putting but it, eight thousand dollars into Potter's lap. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But it is true that Uncle Billy does not know. He's not going to stand up to people and help them deal with the tension of here's what's happening. Don't worry. Here's the path forward. Yeah, he has no ability I mean, George is going to open the door and say, "Hey, wait!" He's going to try Everyone to make everybody here, act t- like sit people. down. There's a lot of chairs. Yeah, yeah. 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 We're all people here. Well, I'm not closing the. What that scene does is that very few movie scenes I think do is I actually buy that Jimmy Stewart could pull it off in that situation. Like mm. so often, it seems arbitrary to me when I'm watching a movie. Like it's an, it's another thing we can make fun of Aaron Sorkin for the. Good guy, you know, President Bartlett's on the ropes and everybody thinks his talking points are stupid until such point as Aaron Sorkin gives him a good speech and then suddenly everybody thinks it's great. Like, it's the kind of thing that happens on every episode of The West Wing. Yeah. And you don't really feel like, okay, yeah, we know it's a pretty speech. We know it's well written, but why would people actually be convinced by it? But Jimmy Stewart in that moment with the deck stacked the way it is and with his brand of charisma and with the things that he's given to say it feels like maybe heaven smiles you could pull it off maybe jake could pull that off you know if 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 that was what he had to argue like you could actually it actually feels like it kind of works i mean the movie yeah well i mean he had the facts on his side yeah and he had the people on his i like he knew all the people and it and it was a small enough crowd and he had the facts like the bank is secured. They're going to open their doors in a week. All our money will be backed and protected. We just need to all figure out how we can last the week together. We mm-hmm. got $2,000 to go around between us. We don't have to go 
and take a 50% loss mm-hmm. on our shares. Right. Don't be stupid. Right. Don't panic. Right. You can see a, ha- a handful of people running over anyway, like they did. You can see some people saying, well, I just want everything I got because I don't trust you or anything. And you can see some people saying, okay, yeah. you were there for me before. I'll trust you on yep. this and we'll yeah. try to figure this out together. Like, and if he's got that kind of relationship with them and it's been personal face-to-face the whole time, then yeah, I, he can pull it off. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it's, it does come back, some of it, to Jimmy Stewart's actual star quality. Like, you believe that this man- He's really got the charisma. He could really, the, yeah, mm-hmm. pull it off. It's yeah. like what Joe Biden was always pretending to be in the debates. He wanted to be like the, you know, there's a man in Pennsylvania sitting by his- stove who yeah you know like <laughs> it's easy to make fun of how bad biden was at that sort of personal touch but jimmy stewart he's got it he could yeah. he could he could have been a politician yeah he's got it i i'd forgotten that that the the, old, the crusty old guy who demands all of his money oh, the 47 like, this closes my account no it doesn't this is just a loan yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. 262 dollars or something yeah, yeah. and the but your then, account's still here your account's still here right but then he comes back at the end He's smiling a lot. Mm. I just thought, well, that's sweet. The guy probably loves him for not for for giving him the money and helping him not to be an idiot and yeah, disciplining him a little bit. You mean yeah. he comes back at the end of the movie? Yeah, he comes back Take at the care. ending at the party and yeah. drops off some money and yeah, yeah. Well, everything about that the play that George makes is really smart. The more you think about it, even the fact that like he could have drawn a line and said, "No, you agreed." We got it in writing. We got a contract. You agreed to sixty day turnover turnaround. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Sixty days is a long time. You'll get your money in sixty days. Period. That's it. That's what you guys agreed to. It's on paper. Chill out. And none of them understand that it was his honeymoon money, right? You know. But George was buying a whole lot of goodwill with that honeymoon money. Yeah, amazing that moment. amount of goodwill. Yeah, I do. I do love it when a movie can, in a non cheesy way, assert. And don't hear this in an anti-Calvinist way, folks, but assert the goodness of humanity. Assert that every once in a while, a group of people, not just a lone George Bailey, but a group of people can actually be convinced to make the right choice. It's the La Marseille scene in Casablanca. If you can convincingly stack the deck such that we get to the point where a group of people band together and just say, yeah, you know what, we're going to do the right thing. It's always very moving. (laughs) All right, we got the Mr. the wonderful Mr. Martini section. The goat rides in the back of the t- mm-hmm. car. Yeah. And then we got the, I guess we've already kind of talked about this, but the Mr. Potter tries to get George to yep. sell his soul. Mm-hmm. Uh, then we've got that wonderful montage with all the stock the footage. Stuff, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they superimpose <laughs> our characters on right. <laughs> One of the silly moment with him whistling. Who whistles? Um, George. He's the air warden. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That whole thing. This <laughs> is just silly. Well, and I'm he, sorry. He, he whistles and then he spits on himself. Yeah. And, and when the narrator's like, of course, in between raising 12 kids and de- redecorating the house, Mary found time to lead the... They're landing on Maybe a tad thick there, but you gotta love it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it is important to remember this movie came out in 1946. I think that that informs... Mm. The optimism and the pessimism Mm -hmm. of this movie, you know, I mean, people had been through a brutal war. It it starts to make sense of some of the darkness of this movie, which this movie is essentially a very dark movie through a lot of it. I mean, 
I think it's because of that, like in that montage, when you start to come to the end of it, and it's like, like so-and-so, they did it, like so-and-so, like on VE Day, day, they they wept wept and prayed, and on VJ Day, they They wept wept and prayed prayed again, (laughs) you know, but those those little moments don't feel cheap, they actually hit, or they do for me, they do a good enough job of putting you in that feeling of the craziness of of being in a world war the craziness and the what's going to happen of it all well Um, and it's not michael bay and pearl harbor trying to play your emotions it's capra who made propaganda movies who whose career actually never really recovered all of his popular movies are pre-world war ii you know mr deeds and mr smith and it happened one night and lost her eyes and all that stuff and then he gives himself to the war effort and he never really gets his mojo back. I mean, it's a wonderful life is his big movie after world war hmm. uh, two. And it doesn't connect with people and it doesn't make money. And then you got Jimmy Stewart who had his pilot license and went and flew miss- missions. I mean, yeah. these guys had skin in the game, I guess is yeah. my only point. Like mm. they cared about the war effort. Yeah. They, they cried and they prayed. So they're not being, it can feel corny to cynical people 60 years down the line or whatever it is, I guess 80 years down the line now, but these they guys threw believed in. it. Yeah. They, they, they weren't just like patting their audience on the back cynically. They were saying we all actually had to do this and hmm. it's nice to sort of commemorate it in a yeah. movie and it's moving. All uh, right. And now we're to kind of, I don't know if you'd call this the middle act or the, I don't know where we are on like the high school arcing out the story kind of thing, but, Uncle Billy's going to go to the bank. He's it's going to lose that money. Harry's just got home, or he's coming home and yeah. having a party. Yep. Can't keep those Potter boys down, can you? Or <laughs> Not uh, can't keep those every Bailey... heel was in Germany and <laughs> Japan, Mr. Potter. <laughs> yeah, can't keep those Bailey boys down. Can't keep the Bailey boys down. Uh, by the way, there's some really weird jump cuts in there. Yes, I remember that. Where Billy, It's where Billy's yep. mocking Mr. Potter, and it's it just cuts and the reason for that if anybody's curious it's not bad filmmaking it's that part of the film deteriorated and the way that the archivists back then would save the film is they would just simply like the as in some some places they would just like remove the whole scene sort of try to make it work artistically but what they decided at a certain point is we want to preserve as much of the movie as possible so we're going to literally just take scissors and cut out the degraded it's like removing the moldy part of a yeah. fruit wow. that you're going to eat or something like that so huh. you'll see a couple you watch I, a movie I noticed that I you watch a movie from too. this era you'll see yeah jump cuts sometimes you know i mean it's sad because nobody was thinking we need to preserve this for posterity and film stock of the era was really easy easily degraded and didn't work that well so you know there's lots of movies that are just lost to us at this point and like lost horizon a big capra hit from the era isn't really well known today because a good chunk of it's just lost like it just degraded so and then we're off to the races we got our final scene with violet going off and then uncle billy comes in he's a silly stupid old fool (laughs) sure is it has never occurred to me to question how far how fast George Bailey falls. If, if in watching it this time, I did not question it. I once again did not question that, but it, I did think about why I'm not questioning that. I mean, we are watching a guy who's pretty decent through the whole movie. He's got his problems, but 
we're going to have to ask the audience to believe that he's gone from pretty decent making do a little bit of bitterness, whatever to suicide. That's a tall ad. Like if, if you just told me that's your story outline and now I have to write that, that's some work to, yeah, to make that play. But the reason it works, and I, and we talked about this a little bit before, I, or the reason I think it works, I mean, certainly it works because very few people actually question it. Yeah, we wouldn't be talking about the movie mm-hmm. if, it, if it, that didn't just land completely. Yeah. yeah, it's like at every turn, what we've seen of George is George is up against the wall and it's him or somebody else and George always picks somebody else. Right. He takes this, he always makes the sacrificial play. George is backed into a corner that he doesn't seem to clearly have any way out of. It's prison that night. It's prison for him or for Uncle Billy. He's ready to explode on Uncle Billy the way that he exploded on Mary earlier and is going to explode on Mary and the kids later. I want to do what I want to do is, well, one of us is going to prison and it's not going to be me. And he's saying that all the while knowing that he's going to be the one to take that. Mm Mm-hmm. He's right. going to be the one to take that bullet, even if it, in this case, is wrong of him to do it. That's what he thinks he's going to do or what he thinks he should do. So then, you know, he's going to run the options he can think of, which is Potter. He's got the life insurance policy. It's like, well, if I'm going to make the sacrificial play and the two plays are prison or death, I guess death is probably the better one. Right. <laughs> for everybody, because at least everybody gets off the hook and... You can imagine somebody that has carried as much frustration and sense of complete failure and impotence as George Bailey actually having a pretty short push when it comes to it, when he suddenly feels like he's got no other, no options. And he's as as, uh, self-deprecating as George has been Mm -hmm. for the entire movie. Like part of why George makes the sacrificial play is because he thinks Harry's better than him. Right. It's a twisted altruism. It's not just like a, a noble it's not a noble love and mm-hmm. so if he can just throw away himself and spend his whole life throwing away himself and his dreams on the altar of the good of other people then mm-hmm. yeah i mean it is yeah i think it probably is slightly narrative slight of somewhat narrative sleight of hand that makes gets us over that hump because it is a it is a big ask like it's pretty dark i mean it's it's a heck of an unforgivable thing to do to marry just for starters yeah just the, where it's placed in the story, a lot of things structurally conspire to make it feel okay or make it feel like it's just a story point mm-hmm. where if you actually had to slow down and think about it or if it was placed a little differently or if it was just handled a little less delicately, you might be like, uh, really? That's awful. He's also drunk. Yeah. Yeah. He's he's drunk. I mean, I don't know. The whole movie is played playing with the... Kind of, mo- this is mostly what Jake was saying, I guess, but like he just, he has a thing he wants that he never gets. Mm-hmm. He never processes it. He never finishes processing it. He never comes to a point of resolution or a point of rest. And he won't until the end of the movie. So it just builds, builds, builds. And you watch all the moment where it builds and then he suppresses it and it builds again and you suppress it until finally it can't be. Yeah. Well, that's it's like you said, Ben, every scene tells the story of George Bailey and Vinegar and yeah. that's the story. That's and the story. That's a large part of what makes this work. You don't really know that George would a- would actually go through with it. He's out there on the bridge mm-hmm. and Clarence preempts it and Clarence is a doofus. Right. 
<laughs> and that's abundantly clear from the beginning. Like, so just because Clarence thinks that George is actually going to go through with it doesn't mean George is actually going to go through with it. I mean, he, we do get the little wild-eyed look from right. Jimmy Stewart. but And we do get, when they're talking up in heaven, they talk about how George is in danger, at least, of yeah. maybe it's not... Oh, totally no, he did, no, he does say when he's seriously uh, contemplating taking... Throwing away the, throwing God's away the greatest, greatest gift. gift. Oh, yeah. his life. Well, then I'm, you know, I <laughs> yeah, have to yeah, hurry. Right. Or... Yeah, no, it says... Yeah. I, I submit that the point I just tried to make was bad. <laughs> the movie actually thinks that George is going to go that through he is going to go through it. You know, I think, actually, you're both right. I think the movie tells us at the very top that George it will go through with it to create suspense. Then I think the way that they stack the story, the way that they tell that story in the moment actually gives George more plausible deniability and more escape, and it makes it more palatable. In other words, there's a difference between what Clarence is told in heaven and what we actually see. What we actually see is much more forgivable and understandable than yeah. just the blanket statement that sets up the problem at the beginning of the movie. Yeah, that's that's true. There's a drunken guy who's always made the right decision before. I actually think if we didn't have the conversation in heaven and you just played the movie through hmm. for me and I didn't know there was an angel coming, I would assume that George is not going to not going to do it. I, yep. would, I would assume. I think you're right. He would, yeah, that's right. This is just. George is going to find some way or, you know, what, what actually happens is if you take the angel conceit out of it, what happens is Uncle Billy sits down with George or somebody sits down with George and says, George. Harry shows up and says, George, you've taken the hits for everybody, and this is not a hit that you can take or should take. Right. It's wrong of you to take this hit. It's not your hit to take. And maybe we get a little deus ex machina still, but the lesson George learns is, hey, George, you don't have to take all the hits for everybody. You don't exist to be the sacrificial lamb of Bedford Falls. Hmm. There's, some, there's something closer along those lines that ends up a different kind of epiphany happens for George. Yeah. If you take a Clarence out of it. Yeah, I think that's true. Hmm. I mean, you actually, obviously you'd lose your third act, but you could do a movie where the townsfolk just show up and say, hey man, we got some money for you. We like you. Um, but instead we're going to have a good old Clarence show up. I think I'm always surprised watching this movie by an adult, how little of Clarence there is and how, I mean, he's a good character, but there's just not, you think of him as so much bigger. As a kid, because because as a kid, that's what you're waiting for. Yeah. Uh -huh. There's a whole bunch of tension and a whole bunch of drama that as a kid, you're just waiting to see the Clarence part because Clarence is an angel and that's kind of cool or weird and mystical and funny. Uh -huh. And th as a kid, at least for me, the, that felt like the good stuff. Right. But I think even if it's only subconscious, we have put up with George whining for so much of the movie that there's a mm. little bit of we feel good watching that get punctured a little bit <laughs> and especially when it's done by someone as completely disarming and harmless as Clarence, Clarence. Clarence odd body yeah <laughs> <laughs> and, it, and it never quite rises to like the conscious thought that we might have about yeah good tell Scrooge he's a miser we don't actually think that about George but I think on some level we are happy to uh, come on George like it's 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 nice to see see Clarence put a pin in that uh, yeah, it's it's man. it's and why they throw Clarence at George is hilarious. Why they, they throw it? At, like 
this man constantly uh, <laughs> thinking about committing suicide. Let's throw this moron <laughs> at him and see what happens. <laughs> heavenly wisdom. Yes, you know, yes, yes, this. They understand more than we do, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> what were you going to say, Ben? Well, it's just, I don't know. It, from, from the Clarence moment onward, maybe even more than George going off on the kids and Mary and George at the bar, you know, getting punched by Mr. Welsh. George becomes really not likable. Like, he's not drunk anymore, apparently, because all of his physical stuff has never happened, because mm-hmm. he doesn't exist. But he's in this weird mental fog, like he had a mental break. Yeah. And he's just kind of like, dude, like, stop. Stop it. Yep. He's just being petty and dumb. And Well, I think people that accuse this movie of corny must forget about all that. And it's not just because the scenes in and of themselves are dark, but it's, it is because George takes so long to believe in Clarence. And yeah. when he's first told about the famous corny angel gets their wing thing, he yeah. sneers at it. <laughs> like the, the movie is actually doing a lot of work to say, okay, here's your reaction. Here's what a, here's how a human feels about this dumb angel gets his wing thing. All right. You two pixies. <laughs> out right. you two pixies go. True the door. Out go. the window. You know, it's, it's like, you know, yeah, at the point where Clarence is like, I'm 400 years old or something like that. Right. Uh, then yeah. we're going to see Mr. Gower, the the bum, get seltzer water sprayed in his face as the bar <laughs> <laughs> laughingly. Yeah. Oh, man. It's so dark. Yeah. <laughs> it's awful. <laughs> Give me. I'm giving out wings. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty great. <laughs> that actor is a lot of fun. We serve hot drinks for men who want to get drunk fast. fast. <laughs> don't need any characters. For atmosphere. Yeah, right. Give the joint atmosphere. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm sure that's what that guy would say. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Oh, boy. I love the conceit that it really is a there but for the grace of God. Like, in, in the George Bailey Lives universe, Nick's okay. He's just kind of in his place. Yeah. In the yep. George Bailey Dies universe, Nick is the monstrous proprietor <laughs> of this, <laughs> this horrible bar. <laughs> this horrible bar. <laughs> Everyone is on the bitter side of things. <laughs> Everyone is bitter, actually. Yeah. I guess bitterness is the defining quality of, of the alternate universe, huh? Yeah, Ernie and Bert and... Well, Bert is the, still the most decent, like... Yeah, but it's precisely because Bert always had a little bit of an edge. Like, Ernie and Bert don't change huh. that much, I think... Because, you know, they don't, Hmm. they're nice guys. You know, they sing for George's honeymoon or whatever, (laughs) uh, that weird scene. Yeah. Um, I love the little bit of business where he kisses him on the forehead and then he he (laughs) He is that. That's great. (laughs) (laughs) By the way, part of the whole conceit of the movie is that Potter, all of these people that we're interacting with, there's a whole other class of people that we're not interacting with. The kind of people that bank at the bank. Hmm. The kind of people who bank at the bank can bank at the bank. Right. The kind of people who can't, who get turned down by the bank, end up at the building and loan. And so you have this sort of lower class rabble of garlic eaters, as Mr. Potter puts it, that he's trying to keep under his thumb, that he's trying to press and keep in his slums. And so George really does have you know a direct impact on all these people simply by giving them a chance, by mm-hmm. giving them hope. By giving them opportunity to better themselves and to better their lives and to start a family. Nick or uh, Martini's not able to run mm. the bar because Martini never got the chance. And so it's Nick's place instead of Martini's place. And, mm-hmm. you know, all these things, they just, they do cascade. 
but it does have its own logic in the in it does yeah. in in the movie mm-hmm. itself. Yeah, Ernie's wife left him. Yeah, because <laughs> they were stuck in a slum in Potter. Yeah. Like they actually make that point. Like mm-hmm. you know, yeah. It's just they 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 never could get out of the pressure that they were under in the slums and breathe, get some self dignity and some self worth. So of course they're just bitter oppressed people. That bitterness with this very particular subset of Bedford Falls actually makes a whole lot of it, of, it, of sense. It, it does. It is what makes this feel organic for the most part, the alternate universe. Mm-hmm. It's also an argument that, I don't know, I remember reading this article years ago by a guy talking about how It's a Wonderful Life could be taken as an apologetic for capitalism. Because mm-hmm. you have Mr. Potter, who's nasty and who's a kind of capitalist, but then you have Jimmy Stewart's character doing it right. You know, he's part of the free market competition with Mr. Potter. And he's actually giving economic opportunity and he's building the town financially, <laughs> right? Which is, I don't know, it does feed into the world of Bedford Falls that these people have a financial opportunity they wouldn't have otherwise. And it changes, it keeps it, keeps it a nicer town. Yeah. A better place, a higher standard of living. Yeah. And that, that's actually true. I mean, maybe Capra wanted to be anti-capitalist, but I don't, even if you don't buy that this isn't this a is a smarter kind of capitalism than just yeah. take everything you can get in the moment. Well, right. a smarter kind of capitalism plays long games. The leftists right. of yeah. today always want to own the leftists yeah. of that era, and I never know how much to allow it. Like, yeah. would Capra, if he if you just launched him and Jimmy Stewart, who by the way was basically conservative, I think Republican. Um, so it was Donna Reed. For the yeah, most part. like if you capital, if but if you took someone like Capra, a famous left leftist of his day, and brought mm. him, brought him in a time machine, would he be happy mm. with things like universal he- health care, with huh. Joe Biden forgiving school debt? I, I mean, you'll see things on Twitter where people will be like, "Well, of course George Bailey would vote for Joe Biden," you know. But I'm not sure I actually buy that these people were quite as radically progressive as mm. the radical left would now like to own a lot of these people. Yeah. I think Capra is probably problematic enough that nobody really tries to own him hmm. that much. But on its surface, if you didn't know anything about Capra and you just saw this movie, I think that it's like Mr. Deeds, some of those other movies are more of the more purely anti-capitalism. And this one really does almost seem like it's just in favor of gentle capitalism or good capitalism mm-hmm. or right enlightened enlightened capitalism yeah. like <sighs> i always forget how much this final section actually lives there's all like the moral stu- quandaries of this is the kind of thing that would have happened if george you know here's how this person is here's but then we just live for a long time with the nightmare aspect of he, george bailey being stuck in this world where nobody recognizes him that scene where he goes into the, his old house yeah and it's all broken down and none <laughs> yeah. of his family's there it's he's creepy. running from room. And, and then the cops show up the door opens they're backlit you can't see any of their faces yep that's really creepy and then george i think that's the moment where george s- runs out and stumbles into a close-up so it's just like on this really expressionist close uh-huh. shot of jimmy stewart's grizzled yeah. wide-eyed face like that whole section you could just you could you can think of nightmares that you've had that <laughs> yeah. did that kind of work. Like, yeah. It's really creepy. Maybe it's undercut a little bit by the go- cops goofing around as Clarence disappears on them. But <laughs> it's pretty scary stuff. Yeah. Yeah. His mother is terrible, which makes sense. I guess we should talk a minute about, does Mary become an old maid? 
and uh, do you guys buy that? Oh, uh, I remember this now. We had this discussion. From, yeah, our earlier one, discussion. But it serves the story well. I think my theory on it is that uh, Clarence stacked the deck a little bit. I think. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. I, I don't. I don't think Clarence was playing quite fair because there's no way that Mary got to show George a version of Mary that would horrify him. Right. So he took. He went to the alternate dimension where Mary had developed a disease and been given shock treatment or something like that and became this librarian. But if you just go, if you, he had just taken George to the straight alternate dimension with no George Bailey. Mary Hatch would have been happily married to Sam Wainwright or... Maybe not living in Bedford Falls. Yeah, I don't know what Mary Hatch would have done, but Mary Hatch is vibrant, alive, a go-getter. Yep. She's... Quite pretty. Yeah, she she ain't having any problem choosing somebody else if... Yeah, like the the movie actually doesn't do any work to say... There's no reason to think that Mary... It just never gives you anything. I mean, you could you could do the whole relate. I'm glad they didn't do this, but you could actually set up the whole relationship. So she's like a shy, quiet, retiring girl. That, George draws her out of her shell. Yep. Blah 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 blah. And then you you fast forward, and she never would have been drawn out of her shell. But that's not how they do it. Well, but she but Donna Reed does such a good job of making herself like a a not that attractive spinster. Yeah, just, it's a great just in her affect. Yeah, yeah. In that moment. Yeah. It's, yeah, she disappears into a different character. It's a great moment. moment. And, and, you know, I'd like to, I, I wouldn't mind watching Donna Reed just play that character in a movie. I'm sure she'd do a good job. I think it's really silly when Bert the Cop discharges his gun <laughs> in a crowd so of people. Stupid. <laughs> that's and that's they, what uh, my wife was laughing at the other night. Yeah, it's so stupid. <laughs> and then they uh, take, take out the letter out. in Pottersville or whatever. He busts out a letter in Pottersville. Oh, does he? Does it yeah. change it into, is it saying something or? Oh, I didn't even notice that. No. One of his shots takes out a letter. That's funny. Pottersville's lit up behind George. <laughs> Watch out! <laughs> lays it on a little thick. Violet's being picked up by the police for, we dare not speculate what. And <laughs> yeah, oh well. <laughs> it's kind of silly. They had us with that house scene. They didn't need to go for it. They didn't need to have. Although, although when George walks down, you, you've had all these shots of Bedford Falls mm-hmm. where it follows him along the streets. And then when it follows him along Pottersville and it's just like hell. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty effective. It is. It is effective. effective. All pawn shops and strip joints. Pawn shops, strip joints. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Girls, girls, girls. It's part. like really gross. It's like, this is awful. Yeah. I've been in towns like this too. Yeah. No, they do a good job. I mean, it's definitely a record recognizable place i mean sad to say but pottersville is a place that i think i've been to more in my life than bedford falls yeah and then you have the ending of the movie old Zion's a cheap trick in <laughs> uh a movie that uh doesn't have a lot of cheap tricks but i'm just gonna throw that out there I told Jake in the car that to me, I had I'd never heard "Auld Lang Syne" anywhere else. So the only association for the song was "It's a Wonderful Life." So to me, it never played like a cheap trick. But I get it. Yeah, well, I, 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 I don't think I would have had that thought except there's a there's a really great song that's usually used sort of in a year called "I Think All Glory Be to Christ" or something like that. That's set to "Auld Lang Syne," mm-hmm. and it's really great. But it uses the melody of Old Lang Syne. Today we uh, listened to some friends do a version of Psalm 90 to Old Lang Syne, mm. which was also really great. Right. 
I was telling Ben that it's such a cheap trick to do anything with that melody because it's such a wonderful, iconic, heart-wrenching melody. Maybe maybe all songs should be Old Lang Syne from now on. <laughs> I just connected it to the end of that movie as just being like the iron thread that you sew it on with. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I can see that argument, and I think it makes sense. I think maybe, Jake, you come from the most mainstream, well, I, your parents were divorced pretty young. I'm just speculating here. I don't know. I, I'm sort of with Ben in that when people sing, oh, I didn't really grow up with old Lang Syne. And when people, when people sing it at parties and stuff, you think my reference point is it's, it's, it's a wonderful life. life. Yeah. It's a wonderful life was the thing that made it, that created that association for me. Well, I don't know that that's not true for me either, except that I feel like, and I can't quite articulate this and I couldn't quite articulate how to, or figure out how to articulate it in the car with Ben on the way up here. But there's something about that, melody and those types of Irish Scottish folk melodies certain of them that just bypass all defenses yeah they they just go deep mm. yeah you don't have defenses against it. it's like there's either so much cultural cachet or some kind of like collective memory or they just they've endured because mm-hmm. they're they just so perfectly uh, in a musical sense they just so perfectly get through all that mm-hmm. stuff, like, and that's why they've been around for hundreds of years. There's something to it that I don't know how to put my finger on. No, I mean, but it, it is what are... draws me to those types of folk melodies, and it's what I always am like in everything I've ever done for my soul among lions. That's what I'm always striving for poetically is something that can live with a melody like that. Mm-hmm. That can be like that can evoke that kind of just. No, no, you don't know. I don't know how to put my finger on it. It's mm-hmm. it's sober and sad and poignant and hopeful. I think old Lang Syne is just too much. Puts the hat on the hat, as you like to say. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> oh man, I do like to say that, don't I? <laughs> you say that a lot, <laughs> like Clarence. You've showown me my way. <laughs> um, yeah, no, it does. I don't know. I mean, Bedford Falls and all of our heroes, it is kind of like working class, Irish, sort of an Italian feeling town. Yeah. But but basically Irish Catholic outside of the martinis and people like that. Yep. I can't think of what other song these people would all sing. Oh, no. And I'm I'm not sure that I fault it. I just think that's a lot. I don't know. Yeah, I just, I don't, I don't know what else you do. It's like when people complain about. So I was, so I was like. Getting all teary <clears throat> listening to my friends sing Psalm 90, and I couldn't separate. Could they have just been singing Old Lang Syne? I don't know. But this is really landing for me. Like, mm-hmm. every word of this psalm, you know, how much of it is... And it was good. Like, the poetry was good. Everything about it was... And Psalm 90 is Psalm 90. And so, it all just came together in a pretty strong way. Now, it's one of those melodies, like, uh, was it Michelangelo? One of those guys who said, it's easy for me to make a statue. I just get a rock and I chip away everything that's not the statue. That's right. That's yeah. Michelangelo, uh, I think. Old Lang Syne feels like that. It feels like one of those platonic ideals of a song. Yeah. God just planted in the universe and all we had to do was find it. Find it. Some some melodies yeah. are made. Some melodies are there to discover. And Old Lang Syne is one of those. And so, I mean, it's like Beethoven's Ninth or other things you could name. But yeah, it does have that kind of 
that kind of power. But yeah, you just, you can't do anything else because it is what this community of people would sing. And it does put you in the mindset of a small town where people might actually get together and sing together. Mm-hmm. And that's the song, that's one of the songs that they would sing. So is there anything else to say about the ending of this movie? I mean, there's not really a lot to digest in it. It really is just all the threads coming together in a mm-hmm. beautiful way. Yep. It really is. I mean, it, it really is one of the best movies mm-hmm. of all time. Yeah. Or at least one of one of my favorites. I think it's one of the best movies of all time. I, I would go that far. I, I, don't, I mean, it's not an example of innovative movie making or someone furthering the art in, in a way that something like Citizen Kane or, or even something as simple as Casablanca is. It, it, it's really just a good story well told. But so and, many things align within yeah, the movie. Yeah. To make you, it you can't tell this same story without these stars, without these people, without this era. Yeah. Without uh-huh. this director. I mean, and all you have to do is go watch Mr. Deeds or Mr. Smith or one of those and you'll see they're good. Some of them might be great, but they're not this. This really was yeah, Capra stumbled yeah. into something. Stewart, they accidentally did something really great. It is just one of those things that God smiled on, really. I mean, hmm. if that's not a inappropriate way to talk about it. You could not intentionally make this movie. You could not set out to make this movie. You could set out to make a pretty good movie that it, that's like it, but the stars really have to align for this this movie to work the way that it does and to work as well as it does. I mean, it wasn't even intended as a Christmas movie. Capra right. always said later in life, I'm shocked. He was happy, but he was shocked that it became a Christmas movie. He always compared it to a kid growing up and having a life of his own and surprising you with a good thing. And like my child went off, he disappeared for 30 years or whatever it is. And now I, he's back in a completely different capacity. And it's one of the happy surprises of my life that this thing that I gave birth to is now somehow for some weird reason embraced as a Christmas classic. I just thought it was about a working man making good or, or, you know, everybody has friends or something like that. I didn't know it was a Christmas movie. And of course, he's an idiot because it's the great, it's the best Christmas movie. <laughs> and Jimmy Stewart and all those people, most of them did live to see it become, you know, so it is one of those happy things where it didn't have to, they didn't, we didn't have to wait until everybody was dead for an audience to discover it. Jimmy Stewart and Frank Capra both lived to see this movie have a second life. Decision not to d- punish Mr. Potter is always an interesting one to me. Um, and I think it's the right choice. I think if you're going to circle yeah. back for any kind of yeah. revenge or <laughs> vendetta or now like, you get yours kind of thing, it just like, would It's, it's a, I mean, it is its own revenge for Mr. Potter. He's now the, I mean, George Bailey's now the wealthiest man. And, and that's not just, uh, it's figurative, but there's, there's a literal. Made him impotent, made Mr. Potter impotent, right? Yeah. George Bailey is now fortified. Mm-hmm. Like he has tens of thousands of dollars. Like he's, and there's nothing that Potter can do to Mm -hmm. him now. There's nothing that Potter can do to him. And George now knows that for the first time. Mm -hmm. I mean, Potter is the author of his own demise as far as that's concerned. Potter doesn't take that 8,000. Then he still always has a chance and Mm -hmm. at least has a psychological edge on George. Mm -hmm. But now it's over because George is healed and redeemed (laughs) and has tens of thousands of dollars right and, and it seems like i it just occurred to me doesn't 
doesn't even hate Mr. Potter anymore. Like, he's actually over it. Yeah. yeah. He's like, Merry Christmas, Mr. Potter. <laughs> I, know, I know. It's okay. I know you're a horrible person and you hate me, but it's okay. Merry like, Christmas. Merry Christmas anyway. <laughs> yeah. No, that, that, is a, that is a wonderful moment. Just... <laughs> We're zen about this now. It's okay. <laughs> I'm going to jail. Isn't that wonderful? <laughs> Mr. Potter is going to be Mr. Potter. There's always going to be Mr. Potters in the world. What yeah. are you going to do? Potter's yeah. going to pot. Potter's going to Potter. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think the reason I keep comparing it to Casablanca and Citizen Kane is, is not just because both of those movies are black and white classics of the era, but they all do have that kind of elemental pull that continues across the ages it's just like these are timeless stories that we can mm-hmm. find ourselves in again and again and again yep well i think we've said enough about this movie we've gone for almost three hours here guys cool i think that's going to be enough sanity at the movies for 2020 but we'll be back in 2021 ah. hopefully ben will have an opportunity to join us more I'd like that. I would like that too. And let's not forget to call out our patrons in the Patreon Patron Choice Award of Awesomeness. Since it's the end of the year and we just did a three-hour episode, let's just let's just talk about how awesome all these, all five of these people are. All right, Jacqueline, you're awesome. Thanks, Jacqueline. You're yeah. a, you're a regular Mary Hatch. Wow, Je- is- Jeffrey, you're awesome. You're a regular. George Bailey? And Mary's really the only one that comes out of this thing with her hands completely clean. Yeah, sorry. That's the best we can do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, George Bailey's as good as they come. So you're George. Hey, you could do worse than... You'd be Peter Bailey. Yeah, you could yeah, be Yeah, you're Peter. regular Peter Bailey. You could be it Harry could Bailey. Be, you could be the younger Peter Bailey. Yeah. The oldest son. Yep. What about Jay? What's Jay? Who's Jay? We Clarence. I guess Clarence is pretty good. He's kind of a doofus, though. Mm. Wow. Um, Mr. Martini? Yeah, he could be Mr. Martini. Yeah, Mr. Martini. Family man. Mr. Gower. No. No. <laughs> no, not quite. There was that time where Jay almost poisoned all those people. <laughs> <laughs> and then when a child tried to stop him and he started beating the child until its ear bled. <laughs> that was a sad day. But he's a great guy. Uh, <laughs> Seth. What about Seth? Oh, man. Um, Seth. Seth could be... Uh, I, Tommy. I'm, I'm losing characters. Who's Tommy again? The other boy. Oh, in the drugstore at the beginning? No. No, the youngest, Bailey. Oh, right. Excuse me. Excuse me. Oh. <laughs> I burped. Ryan and Judith. Who are they? Who are Mr. The... and Mrs. Welsh. Yeah, oh. there we go. <laughs> okay. They're pretty good people. Yeah. They just don't I, get a, 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 a starring role. They don't get a sympathetic oh, portrayal yeah. because they're opposite George. But that's right. There's nothing wrong with Mrs. Welsh, and there's nothing wrong with Mr. Welsh defending his wife's honor. Not yep. at all. I have always felt like the movie missed a beat by Mr. De- Mr. Bet by not having Mr. Welsh show up at the end and say, ah, "George, I heard about your thing," and obviously, even though we had our, I mean, I don't know, yeah, hard day, do that, something. That they should have resolved that storyline. Actually, it's it's not okay that George was. Horrible. I mean, horrible to those people. No, it's not okay. And I, I I don't know. Maybe there just needs to be a little Marvel like post credits thing where <laughs> yeah. m- Mr. Martini's like, Welcome back to my bar, Mr. Welsh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a Mario. I'm a gonna win. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry that you're it's George versus you. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'll select your <laughs> 
wink. I don't know. Um, <laughs> good times. <laughs> good times. Yep. What would what would be the credits? Would that be the credits cookie on this? I guess the credits cookie. The credits could... cookie is the stupid SNL skitter where they all like that. beat the crap out of Mr. Potter. <laughs> what? Wait, I remember what happened to that eight thousand dollars. <laughs> <laughs> well, by the way, I'm not the first person to point it out, but. And there's no reason that the movie should resolve this. It's fine the way. I mean, I wouldn't change a thing. But if you want to be grumpy, you can point out that just because the townsfolk come and give George some money doesn't mean that he's out of legal trouble for that money that went missing. The, the movie rightfully waves its ha- magic wand and makes that problem go away. But actually, if you're the police officer or the bank guy or anything, you're like, I misappropriation of funds is serious and you can't just come up with it and call it good. <laughs> right. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Like Mr. Potter, you have to imagine and it's a wonderful life too. <laughs> he is not <laughs> letting it go. He's begins just... with George in jail. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And Mr. Potter there in his wheelchair. Well, how does it feel to be the wealthiest man in prison, George? (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. That would be a good hook for It's a Wonderful Life, too. (laughs) It's a Wonderful Lifer. I I want to see a story told from the perspective of Mr. Potter's silent henchman. Oh, I love that guy. (laughs) Yeah, he's great. He has almost no expressions on his face. Well, the Mr. Potter origin story would be a lot of fun. You know, I'm surprised we haven't gotten that. I've I, I've thought at multiple points during the course of this conversation about Googling to see if somebody, isn't that the fan fiction that you want to write? Like, if you're going to write fan fiction about It's a Wonderful Life yeah. or the world around it, don't you want to see the rise of Potter? The rise of Potter. Let's call it Mr. Potter. Yep. The crimes of <laughs> Mr. Potter. <laughs> Fantastic. Never mind. <laughs> Fantastic lives and where to find them. <laughs> <laughs> Bedford Falls. So uh, I'm not rise I mean, of Bedford Falls. Rise, the rise of Potter. Right. I did just find in, in googling that I didn't find anything interesting, but I did just find that at the at, at the time, some of the FBI considered the film's portrayal of Potter as unfair. And a 1947 FBI internal memo states that the film, quote, represented a rather obvious attempt to discredit bankers by casting Lionel Barrymore as a Scrooge type so that he would be the most hated man in the picture. This is a common trick used by communists. Whoa. So our government had Capra on their radar and they were not going to let his communist propaganda get by without a memo. your tax dollars at work folks good yay yay all right well merry christmas ben merry christmas nathan what does mr potter say merry christmas to you no happy new year to you in jail (laughs) 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 that's not much of a dunk i I like to think that if we lingered there mr potter would have been like no way to and like he came up with something better than (laughs) yeah yeah (laughs) say that again (laughs) Ah, well, a happy new year to you, Jake. Merry Christmas. Happy new year. You wonderful old building and loan. Yeah, we'll be back next year with more sanity at the movies. Bye. Bye. Oh, and until next time. Attaboy, Clarence. <laughs>